You're listening to Find the Good News, Episode 31, The Windblown Seed, featuring Adley Cormier. This episode of Find the Good News is sponsored by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. Check out our work at parkerbrandup.com. Next week's episode features Catholic blogger, writer, and speaker Diana Vallette. Buckle up because this episode is a little longer than most of them. Diana and I share the Catholic faith. We find a lot of common ground, but we've come at our faith from different directions, which I think is really lovely. There's a lot of openness and honesty in our talk, and I think you're going to get into uh, get into some territory that maybe you didn't think we would go. If you're into that sort of thing, then tune into this episode. The week after that, I'll be posting a conversation that's 25 years in the making with my high school speech teacher and mentor, Alita Barnes. It was a personal treat to me, and I hope that you'll get a taste of the special woman that really helped make a hinge in my life. Following that, I've got Jeremy Boudreau, Devin Morgan, and Rusty Havens, three gents coming at good works from different angles right here in our community. I'm really looking forward to all three of those visits. And then this month, I'll be having the Mixtape Roundtable. I'm excited for that talk, but I'm really excited to see how it turns out. This is something new for Find the Good News. I've got some cool things in store to help generate some really great conversations between Paul Gonsalon, Rosie Pryor, and Elizabeth McDaniel, and myself. I'll keep you posted as we move closer to that episode's launch date. In the last episode, I mentioned that I'll be producing some road trip episodes of Find the Good News. Well, I have several of those lining up, and I'll be doing my first travel visit this coming week. I'm excited to see how these are going to go. I can't wait to share all that multimedia with you guys. This is going to be a a more content-rich format for us, so just keep your uh, ears and eyes open for any information I post about that on social media. Look, this show is intended to be a Chautauqua. Now, that's a word that I pulled from the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. So if you don't know what it means, look it up. But that can only happen if you, the listener, participate. So that's why I've set up the Good News Listener Hotline. You can call the show, leave thoughts, feedback, questions, topics, criticisms, really whatever you like. If your message can be worked into the show, then I'll discuss them with the folks that are on the show with me. Don't be shy. I received some really great feedback through Facebook and Instagram, but the listener hotline is something that you can do to really get involved with the show. So call the Good News Listener Hotline at 802-459-1668. That's 802-459-1668. You can also text that number. That number is available on the website as well at findthegood.news along with all of the uh, most current episodes of the show. What really helps are reviews and recommendations. Whatever app you're using to listen to find the good news, even if you listen directly on Facebook or YouTube, give the episode you're listening to a like, a rating, a review, and make sure to subscribe to the show. You'll get notifications about new episodes and other content, and it's going to help keep the show free. And if you use a good news advertiser, someone that you hear on this show, then let them know that you heard about them on Find the Good News. That's a huge help to me in this endeavor to bring you positive, thought-provoking, and heart-moving content. Your ears, minds, hearts, and feedback mean the world to me. Keep sending that in and keep listening to this show. I'll keep visiting with good people and sharing your stories. Now let's get to what you tuned in for and press play on a little good news.
I had no idea what was in store for me the day that local historian and author of Lost Lake Charles, Adley Cormier, sat down in my vehicle to do a ride-along as part of a historic tour project in Lake Charles, Louisiana. At every stop, corner, street, and alley, Adley had some information or intimate knowledge. I was fascinated by how quickly he could reveal the history of seemingly insignificant places and landmarks, pointing out interesting and forgotten details that brought me back in time. I left that ride along wanting to hear more. Though many years had passed since we'd spoken, I wanted to get Adley on Find the Good News and continue that conversation. When I made the request, Adley enthusiastically agreed. That's the thing that I enjoyed most about our conversation, his enthusiasm. When he speaks of Southwest Louisiana history, there is an energy, a joy, and honesty that makes the spaces come to life. Adley moves time backward and forward with ease, bringing you to the Spanish Louisiana coast when the Acadians arrived, on to the business exploits of the infamous privateer Jean Lafitte, through the Great Lake Charles Fire. These are the legendary people and events we've all heard of, the tales we think we know. But Adley reveals in a minutia of details, tiny things, sprinkled throughout our history, binding one thing to the other, an infinite number of dominoes falling in every direction, building a chain of events that affect the lives of each person living in our region today. His uncanny ability to pull threads between seemingly disconnected moments in local history is really something to behold. Adley sees the web that weaves through the timeline and how it affects every generation in turn. When you get a glimpse of it from Adley's perspective, you want to see more. What he shares helps generate a sense of place, culture, value, and honestly, tolerance. When we know where we come from, we can see that we are not all that different from others. For me, that's one of the first steps in generating understanding. That's one of the gifts of Adley's willingness to share. I'm glad that history put Adley and I together for that ride along all those years ago. That one little moment in my personal history led to Adley sharing his good news with me, and now I get to share that with you. Wake up this morning, you're dreaming up a story I can hear the way it's going, cause you're laughing in your sleep on the path to your deliverance and a holy wall of light pouring through your window. Old news, bad news, fake news. Sometimes you just want to shut it all down and get no news at all. With Find the Good News, I aim to change that by focusing on good people doing good work. I visit with artists, educators, civic and spiritual leaders, musicians, business owners, students, volunteers, and everyday citizens who are using their creativity, resources, and talents to bring hope and happiness to their corner of the world. In each episode, I dig into the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have street-level conversations about relatable things going on in their lives. Discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that are anchoring them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of news in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm going to find the good. And I love you just. of No Man's Land. Yeah, we did the logo for that. Yeah, oh, yeah, did you? Yeah, oh, sure did. Oh, yeah, we came up with the notion. I was a consultant really? for that project, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because it, trying to decide on how you make No Man's Land a positive 
twist. twist because it's a it's a, a very difficult concept no man's land sort of like oh my what are we going to do oh no man's land nobody wanted to go there or no man's land why yeah. would you want to go there sure so coming up with a positive notion was difficult so that the becoming louisiana difficult. yeah it was difficult so the becoming louisiana motif is is good because it it actually had to become louisiana rather than just claimed as louisiana well it's interesting because uh after my father you know passed away we we got to talk and my family's from de quincey and my last name's parker you know and that's a pretty common name up in that neck of the woods mm-hmm. and uh my uncle we got to talking you know where's our family come from because we really never hear stories about that mm. and he got to telling us a story had directly related to no man's land he yeah. said that uh our family was um let's see there and the way he tells it is there was mr parker and mr parker's wife and he had his two sons but then in the community they lived in in mississippi there was uh, a fire or an accident or something and their neighbors the mother and father died so mr parker and his wife adopted the two boys mm-hmm. right and these two boys they raised them as parkers but they weren't really parkers but Mr. Parker got in a land dispute with somebody over a railroad track or something to that degree. He kills the guy. They up and take off to no man's land. No man's land. Yeah. And then our family, that's where we come from. So we don't know if we're from Mr. You're, Parker's directly or the two genet- adopted yeah, boys. Yeah, genetically Parker's. Connected or. What's that? You don't know if you're connected with the neighbors? Or, no, or we don't the, know. That that's right. Well, that's interesting, though. That's interesting. Of course, it, it, it'll boil down to the, you know, the DNA eventually, if yeah. that ever happens. But uh, it's one of the many, many colorful stories that you have in No Man's Land, because it was a place where if you wanted to have a new beginning, this is where you came to get that new beginning. Sort of like Australia in the, sure. you know, in the... In it's the early twentieth century, you that's know. fascinating. I mean, yeah, well, it is because you don't actually have that as a a real formal thing in in terms of the United States. Uh, the United States has pretty much been a you know claim and conquer sort of thing. We claim it. This is our flag. This is ours. Our law prevails. But with the no man's land agreement, and it was actually agreement between Herrera and uh, Wilkinson, it was sort of like, well, we're not going to bother with those people down there, so they can pretty much live on their own. Which meant you, if you want protection you brought your own ah. and it, it meant a lot of things for a lot of different people for folks from the upland south and the lowland south it was a place to get a new start for some of the escaped uh, slaves that came here it was it was a lot closer than trying to get all the way up to canada ah, you know? okay so we have that's why we have uh, in places like choates prairie and mossville and so forth when when the american authority actually became you know solidified here after the no man's land era you already had well-established areas of, of freed blacks. I see that had been able to escape from plantations along the Tesh Valley, or kind of re- restart uh, right here. In right, this. they okay. restarted here, and uh, because their masters knew that if they went to no man's land, they were going to have to bring their own whole posse in order to do that, and wow. it wasn't done. So uh, there, there's some of that. I mean, there are they're not huge in numbers, but the thing is, there were established free black communities here when the white man, when American white supremacy right flag you know planted the the flag and it, it made it a little bit different because this is not what you ordinarily expect in south louisiana no that's not i'm actually fascinated to hear that i didn't know any of that yeah yeah the history of uh, mossville and uh which was choates prairie and there were other i mean the you have to remember imperial calcio was very very large and the part of imperial calcio that was part of no man's land was about half of it so you're looking at about five thousand square miles of of 
no man's land and uh, a good uh, 3,000 square miles of it was Imperial Calcasieu Parish. Some of it was up in Vernon and okay. all the way up to the Sabine because it was sort of a sort of an oddly shaped wedge sort of thing between the Calcasieu and the Sabine. Interesting. And so some of that no man's land area goes over, was over in Texas. What we consider uh, Texas. Uh, well, actually, more it, it, Texas. Actually, their claims were to the Sabine River. They were pretty consistent. Oh, okay. Sabine River is, is where it was. Uh, the 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 problem was the Louisiana Purchase only actually connected land that was directly drained and connected to the Mississippi River. Okay. So the Atchafalaya is connected to, to that. The Red is connected to the Mississippi. Uh, 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 Tesh is connected. So that was all clear. That that part of Louisiana was very clearly in the Louisiana Purchase. But once you get past, um, um, let's say, Scott or Lafayette, you begin, to, the, the watershed changes and you have the Mermentau and the Decon and the Calcasieu River and so forth. And that, that area was not connected to the Mississippi, not drained by the Mississippi, so it was not, it was there was a very solid reason for why in the hell is, what is this ours, is this still Spain? Yeah. And it, that was where the conflict began. I see, Because okay. the purchase was very not clear. Uh, uh, Napoleon sold all lands drained by the Mississippi River and that meant all the lands, I mean, all the way up into Alberta, really. Al- really? Part of that Alberta. Part? Yeah, Alberta, yeah, I mean, it's all of Montana, Alberta, North Carolina, North Dakota, South Dakota. A lot of places are drained that way. And the red drains that way. So that was, that was uh, part of the purchase. But then when you get to this part of Louisiana, we're not connected to the Mississippi at all. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I didn't think about that, yeah. really. It, it's, but... it's, it's, the, it, it's where political plumbing... Makes a difference. <laughs> Political That's a good plumbing. way to put it. And, and that was plumbing. the way it was. And, you know, the history of Southwest Louisiana is very fascinating because it doesn't connect with the history of the rest of the state pretty much at all. Um, and um, it's, uh, it's an interesting place. And the no man's land concept for this part of Louisiana, west of the Calcasieu, uh, is, uh, has always been very close to my heart because it, there's so many unusual uh, uh, sources for the folks who lived here. Um, are you familiar with Texians? No. Okay, well, let me tell you about Texians. Texians were folks who had been promised by people like um, Austin and Houston uh, that they would make fortunes in Texas. They So come into Texas, which at that point in time was a province of Mexico. Okay. On the it, uh, Actually, they were fighting against Spain to get their independence, but it was a province of Mexico. And there were American settlers there because it had a fabulous cotton lands available for cotton. And cotton was the big motivating factor in, in, in the antebellum period of, Louis, of, of the United States. So uh, you had these uh, Americans who were living in Spanish Texas, encouraging people to come to Spanish Texas in order to, to um, uh, make their fortunes. Yeah. And uh, they were selling land. They'd gotten land grants from the Spanish crown. They're getting, and the, the problem is uh, these immigrants, if you will, yeah. uh, there were friction with the, the native Spanish-speaking people who were there and the, 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 some French-speaking people there, too. And they got very discouraged because they weren't getting what they were promised. Okay. And so many of them came back into no man's land to settle. They were Texans. Okay. They came back. People like uh, some of the, the Perkins, which is a family in your neck. Yeah, the that's and, right. And, that's right. You know, uh, Perkins, the cowards, okay. uh, the geniuses all came 
back they they were from mississippi they were from uh, north carolina they were promised uh, this wonderful uh, future in texas they went to texas uh, you know they left the united states went to texas started and they were very discouraged and they came back so these texians as we call them came back into and they were part of the settlement pattern here in addition to the people who were already here you know you had a few french and spanish uh, people like bartholomew le bleu and you know and so forth then you had american settlement settlers here that also came in the Ryan's and the uh, the uh, uh, some of the Perkins, a different family of Perkins, but you know you had those. So you had you have this odd mix, and then you had the Acadians on top of all that who came this yeah. far west as they were you know filled up the lands along the uh, Bayou Teche and Bayou Vermilion, and they were pushed more to the west because you know the, the good land was being taken up by the big. Uh, cotton and cane plantations that were being set up so the small farmers that were being sort of pushed out uh were were pushed out to this corner and so you had a lot of uh, unusual um sources for the people of western louisiana and uh, that makes for a, a real interesting match you know listening to you talk this is exactly why i wanted to have you on this show because i don't know if you remember when we did the historic tour app for the mm-hmm. convention visitors bureau mm-hmm. that's where i met you mm-hmm. and uh out of all the things we did for that app which you know we shot a lot of video and and dealt with the editing part but the biggest joy i got out of that whole thing was getting to ride around with you before we actually went and shot that app and yeah. you pointed things out and really a lot of little details that didn't end up in the tour it was mm. the small stuff and one thing that really stuck out to me was you talked about i believe tin pin alley tin pin alley yeah tin pin alley is a cool part of uh, uh, sort of an unknown part of of lake charles it's the uh the public uh, alley between the secular part of of Lake Charles on that block, and the the church is part of that block. Yeah. Uh, the, and for your listeners or viewers or however you want to phrase this, uh, we're talking about the south part of the block, um, which is uh, bordered by Ryan and Pujo and Bilbo and Kirby. Uh, the very corner of that that property uh, on the east southeast edge is the cathedral, which is yeah. undergoing renovation right now. But at one time, that whole southern part of the block was church property, and uh, the original Catholic church in in Lake Charles um, uh, was on that property, but facing the uh, the uh, courthouse and there was a a a convent and a a priest's house and also a school st charles academy started uh, out there as early as uh, the 1860s Uh, by 1888 they actually had a very nice building they were teaching teaching girls in that uh, that school and all of that burned up in the great fire of 1910 it it, it all went and uh, the uh, the story goes that the uh pastor of the church uh, uh, Monsignor Cramner had to go to Europe to get money to to borrow to build the church and he borrowed from bankers that he knew there he had been from the, the low countries and he uh, they actually mortgaged the land really and when 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 the bankers asked him and this is the way the story goes now i can't say that it's 100 <laughs> percent. folks of the cathedral might might uh be surprised by this but i don't think they're they are uh when they asked the bank when the bankers asked was this good land he said yes it was land flat enough that you could bowl 10 pins ah. and so the the, <laughs> the alley which divides the 
the western part of the land which is what they actually sold it put it to commerce so that they could build the cathedral uh, that boundary is called Tin Pen Alley and it's still maintained by the city of Lake Charles uh, but I mean I would think probably 99 people out of 100 don't even know where it is but sure. Tin Pen Alley is is that boundary between the secular and the the uh, the the profane if you will that's well the, sure because uh, that's right there where the phoenix building yeah is, the right? phoenix building is is to the west and the uh the rectory for the cathedral is to the east and there's a little alleyway there there are actually some louisiana iris and some cypress trees planted there it was a little bit of an improvement uh way back when i was on the dda that was one of the first things that we did we improved ten pin alley yeah because we wanted it to be a connector a pedestrian connector between the the uh 1911 city hall and the um the uh, Pioneer Building, which is currently City Hall in Lake Charles, um, which at one time was uh, an office building. See, everything kind of connects to other things. Sure. The, uh, the Pioneer Building was begun as essentially Lake Charles's answer to Maurice Hyman's oil center in Lafayette. Oh, really? Did you know that? No, I did not know that. It was built by Wildcatters, oil people, a fellow by the name of Mardello Vincent and Lee Welch built the Pioneer Building because they saw what Maurice Hyman was doing with uh, his old orange orchard in Lafayette and he was providing places for all the exploration companies to set up. This is in the um, late 40s, early 50s. All of this was happening at the same time in both Lake Charles and Lafayette. A lot of exploration in oil. And so uh, uh, they decided that they were going to build this tower that they were going to just fill with exploration companies and engineering companies and so forth. So they, they actually set this the, the whole thing up and uh, went with a kind of a modern looking building. I mean, it's a mid-century building. It's a really good example of that uh, sort of prairie style. And uh, they never had a grand opening because really? they, as the floor was finished, it, they'd loaded up with offices all the way up. And it was packed with, with business for a long time until the late 70s when they finally kind of cleared out. The oil industry sort of decided Lafayette was where they were going to be. Sure. And we were going to be on the production end of things. But... Uh, it was originally a, an oil, a Lake Charles version of the oil center was going to be a vertical thing. Kind of that, a cool that's notion. fascinating. And, you know, somebody uh, somebody said this about you and listening to you talk. I'm like, you know, again, it was something I only got to experience that one time on that trip. Uh, I love how you said that one story connects to the other each, each by geography. And what she said was that you're the uh, you're the historic Google of Lake Charles. <laughs> Well, the story goes, yeah, well, a lot of work, I do a lot of work for the Convention Visitors Bureau. They're very, very proactive in trying to develop an identity for this corner of Louisiana. And it's tough. It really is tough because there's a really, really strong identity in Louisiana in New Orleans. New Orleans is what people think of as Louisiana. And there's a really strong identity in in Cajun country. And Cajun country is, is I'm, I'm from Cajun country. I'm from Burbridge. Je parle français. You wouldn't think it, but I do. And uh, it's a fascinating place. And we're right on the edge of that. But we're where the Cajuns meet the Creoles, meet the Texans, meet the Germans, meet the English. Uh We're on that end. And um, uh, in order to develop an identity, you have to know what the history is in order to to get an idea of what are we about. And, you know, we're we're the, 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 the outback of Louisiana. We're the... The, uh, not necessarily the no man's land, but the place you come to get new starts, new beginnings. And, and how, that's that's a positive thing. And Yeah, no, exactly. That's a, As you say that, I think how relevant in our world today, there's so much discussion about immigration and asylum seekers and, and people that are escaping conflicts and trying to migrate to new lands where they can be safe. 
listening to you tell this history, you know, this is what humans do. This is very natural for humans to do this, to learn cultures and learn from each other. And and it provides, particularly here, it provides a really colorful basis. If you know the history, it's a very colorful basis. Uh, It's it's, uh, the only place I know of on the American continent where you actually have an interaction between cowboys and pirates. (laughs) You you wouldn't think cowboys might, but you actually have that here because many of the early settlers in in, uh, on the Calcutta Prairie raised cattle. This was open range land, and open range land means that we did not have uh, cotton culture, we did not have cane culture, we did not have big white plantation houses with with uh, you know six hundred slaves doing doing. Yeah, that's not what was going on. That was not what was going on here. Uh, You might have um, uh, somebody like the LeBlue or, or uh, Charles Salier that essentially operated small sustaining farms and then they raised cattle on the open prairies and then they would drive their cattle to the markets eastward. The markets were in St. Martinville, Opelousas, and in New Orleans eventually. And the cattle drives went that way. And these cattle drives actually predate the Texas cattle drives, you know, the raw really? hide, get yeah. them up cattle drive by 100 years because the cattle drives begin in the in the uh, late 1700s and it wasn't until the 1870s before you had cattle drives that went north south from texas to to uh to kansas so anyway you have cattle industry here and you have uh, people like uh salier who have these cattle and uh, you know you have you can convert cattle into meat you can go convert cattle into uh, hides and you know you have something to trade with sure and so when Jean Lafitte and his guys come sailing into southwest Louisiana because it's no man's land they could operate in the open here Uh, Uh, remember they could operate in the open so they they come here they would trade so you think of you think of of the Jean Lafitte oh you know it's not the Jack Sparrow Pirates of the <laughs> right. Caribbean sort of thing. It's think of more like the uh, sort of the UPS man and Amazon, if you will. Okay. Because if you yeah. needed if you needed wine or if you needed gunpowder, if you needed uh, dishes, pots and pans, uh, you know, as well as gold and silver, he got it from Lafitte because he he had, he had the market. I mean, he controlled according to 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 um, to. Uh, William Claiborne, who was the first governor of Louisiana, the last territorial governor, the first state governor of Louisiana, uh, Jean Lafitte uh, operated about 25% of all business in the lower Mississippi Valley. Wow. It was a black market, essentially. No tariffs, no questions asked. You know, oh, you need some, some... some port, you need some burgundy, you need some whiskey, I can get it for you. So think of fulfillment center. Yeah, than, do you know that's a great way to put that? I mean, it puts it in a whole new light I just when you it say does. that. So when you see a pirate flag in southwest Louisiana, you think, oh, well, let me get those cattle because I can trade some cattle for some rum and I can get, yeah. you know, or some pots, dishes, guns, whatever I need because we're not in a cash economy, really, in southwest Louisiana. We're still, you know, at this point in time, and we're talking about the late. 1700s, early 1800s. So you're talking about trade. Trade. It's all it's trade. It's trade. It's trade. Essentially trade. And um, uh, it's uh, it's always been interesting that that the you know the oldest pirate festival, which used to be contraband days, now they call it pirate festival. I don't know if that's an improvement in, in terminology, but it actually deals with that. It's actually a proactive entre. You know, we're talking about 
sale and water-based entrepreneurial action in the bayous and marshes of southwest louisiana that's what we're celebrating right right you know uh, it can get muddled up in other ideas yeah because you know you think of the pirates of the caribbean and that's a completely different notion jean lafitte himself never never called himself a pirate he was a privateer he actually had a letter of mark a letter of mark uh was a letter actually granted by government the united states can also offer letters of mark we had our own privateers uh, you were given a permission to uh, to board enemy vessels and take their stuff. Essentially, <laughs> legal piracy. Yeah, legal piracy. <laughs> and uh, the letters of mark were issued by many countries. Um, uh, the United States has a whole section on on issuing letters of mark. So it's it's something that is actually a, a form of politics. Uh, Lafitte's letter of mark was from Cartagena, which was in New Spain, uh, which was in what is now Colombia, Cartagena in Colombia, and uh, he had connections there. The, the deal with with Lafitte was that none of his stuff ever went to Cartagena. It was recycled in Louisiana. He took your stuff and he sold it to somebody else. Yeah. Uh, so yes, he was. I mean, it was. He didn't uh, rob from the rich and give to the poor. Essentially, is rob from the rich and sell it to the poor. Sure. And then um, and then make a living a- along the way. So uh, that's 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 uh, you know we're talking about a fairly uh, a fairly practical pirate here uh, or practical privateer. But he did maintain that he was a, a privateer, not a pirate, but a privateer. He had his letter of mark, uh, although uh, Cartagena. And this is the other bizarre thing about about Lafitte. Uh, We know a lot about him from the time that he was uh, coerced into, not coerced, but he worked with uh, Andrew Jackson for the Battle of New Orleans and for several years on either side of that. But his early days and his latter days are totally unknown. It's all conjecture because he didn't leave much in the way of records. Yeah, I watched a documentary. uh, One of my favorite explorers is on uh, the the Travel Channel, Joshua Gates. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did an episode about him and I was fascinated by how many holes there were and how much of it was just... I mean, what we know about about Jean Lafitte is essentially what the authorities want us to know about Jean Lafitte. Uh You know, they say, oh, he's bad. He did this. He did that. He did this. But, uh, you know, in terms of anything from his side, we don't really have much, you know. He didn't leave a whole lot of paper trail. Let me just say that. It's a mysterious well, I mean, figure. that's the way you had to be. I mean, how could you possibly leave paper trail when when you're actually subject to being caught and hanged? Well, uh, sure. You know, and in a figure like Lafitte, I mean, how much does that change the culture too? I mean, what are they bringing in and out of an area? Well, you know? what they're bringing in and out of the area, as far as Southwest Louisiana goes, and because we're so remote, and I mean remote. Um, uh, he was bringing in essentially the day-to-day things you needed to have in order to live. Okay. And uh, we're talking, uh, you had to have uh, guns, you had to have gunpowder, you had to have uh, um, pots and pans, uh, f- I mean, furniture, jewelry. You know, there are all sorts of tales. The stuff of uh, life. Uh, textiles, yeah. you know, all sorts of things that you needed to have in order to live. We did not have established uh, retail outlets uh, at that point. And Jean Lafitte was one of the folks that provided that. I mean, there were also itinerant pen- peddlers that would come in and, and do, but the deal is Jean Lafitte was able to get the best stuff. I mean, he had access to all the ships and the Gulf and the Upper Caribbean. So yeah. And he ran, actually, it was a, a sort of a corporate empire, if you will, because it wasn't just Jean Lafitte. It was Jean and his, his brother Pierre, along with a, about 20 um, lieutenants that operated their own vessels 
that were working for Lafitte. Okay. Uh, there were also what we call barracoons, which were uh, the uh, essentially warehouses and the shipyards and the dormitories where folks worked actually maintaining the stuff that he stole. He had The first barracoon was in Barataria. The second uh, uh, one, he was actually chased out of New Orleans about Mm, 1818 uh, he set up a base in Galveston uh, called Campeche and that was the other big base but there was a barracoon at, on Contraband Bay when at Nimblet's Bluff and these were little settlements operated by the, the this pirate corporation if yeah, you will so, and uh, it, you know men were stationed there to protect the stuff and trade with the locals and to take things in you know they would take in things like uh, uh, frankly things like feathers and uh, oysters and cattle and you know uh, hides and whatnot and uh, um, uh, they processed that stuff through and sold that on and then did with uh, you know handled the other goods that, that were being uh, supplied to the residents of southwest Louisiana. Now, you have to admit, this was fairly sparse numbers on the ground. We're not talking about a huge, we're not talking about 150,000 people. We're talking, you know, probably fewer than, than 3,000 people in in, Cal in all of Imperial Calcutta. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. We're not talking about a lot of people. We're talking about fairly sparse. But it, 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 it is interesting, and that's one of the components that make this corner of Louisiana so interesting. So, Adley, I mean, there's so many stories that have the, a beginning, right? I mean, and just listening to you, you can go from one thing to the other and, and, and drill back and, and really keep going back to the, the beginning of a story. And then you can even take that story and go back to another beginning. Mm. Where does that start for you? Like, where do you get your interest in this? And where did that? Where did that begin? Well, yeah. uh, first off, uh, I was, uh, I'm from Burbridge. Okay. And in Burbridge uh, and, and very close to St. Martinville, you live with history all around you. I mean, literally, you can. Uh, I know where my great great grandparents are buried, and you know, you, you have the family stories there because the uh, part of the Acadian culture begins in South Louisiana in the in the uh, 1760s, 1770s, and pretty much continues on. Of course, the Acadians, as you well know, had an established culture in Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick. Uh, they had been there for 150 years when the British decided in 1755 to literally kick them out. Yeah. It was a form of ethnic cleansing. They cleaned out the, they wanted to seize these lands they used the pretext of them not willing to swear allegiance to the crown which was a fiction uh in fact uh, a fellow not too terribly long ago uh, uh, uh warren perrow from uh abville actually got a, a, an apology from the queen of really? england for doing that yeah wow yeah he had been pursuing that for a long time anyway um uh, the um, the acadian culture uh, which was essentially the northern french people maritime people who had settled in the eastern uh, provinces of Canada had been there since the 1600s, before the pilgrims came to the United States, before. They were there. They had a, a well-established culture. Uh, beginning in, in 1755, the British began seizing their lands, and they would literally just uh, bring a boat up, separate men and, and, and boys into one boat, and women and girls into another, and then just send the boats out. And they would seize the lands and they were repopulating uh, to some extent they were repopulating Scots uh, onto the eastern colonies in order to relieve the pressures of the Scottish that were uh, rebelling against the the uh, the uh, English uh, from the Battle of Culloden so the Scotch history and uh, you, you know, 
U.S. history, Canadian history, English history, French history, all kind of blends at this point. But mm. in any case, uh, they were giving those lands to, to the Scots. And that's why it's called Nova Scotia, New Scotland. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So that, yeah. That's, that's, that's what I thought. But anyway, the French were there first. The, the Acadians were there. And uh, the Acadians had a, a very pleasant existence there. They actually served an interesting point um, because, uh, I don't know if you know the geography of, of that part of Canada, but the Bay of Fundy is the, the big element there. And Bay of Fundy has enormous tidal changes. And because of that, the native uh, Indians in, in uh, eastern Canada, the Mi'kmaq Indians, yeah. the big tribe there, um, they actually had a fear of the, the ocean because of the tidal bore being so extensive. Uh -huh. They love fish, but they did not themselves fish. They did not live close to that. It was viewed as sacred and spooky land. So the Acadians, uh, essentially, who were very good fishermen and hunters and everything else, uh, served as an intermediary. The Acadians would fish, they would trade with the Indians, and they would. It was there was a very good connection, interconnection between the Native Americans and the Acadians. They served that interesting uh, bridge I for see, that particular. Okay. I mean, uh, just a quirk of history. Um, in fact, when the when the English would come for some of the early from my ancestors, some of them were taken in by the Mi'kmaq Indians, and they were hidden away with Mi'kmaqs. So that's why they're still Acadian. Yeah. Yeah. This what you're talking about, and I'm not going to segue too far into this, but the only reason I know I'm hearing things that I'm a little familiar with is because of my interests in Oak Island ah. and all of that area and the Mi'kmaq mm. Indians. And there's so much conjecture about what's happened there. It's so mysterious. But a lot of what you're saying does connect oh, with some does. of that. It's, it's, all, it's all everybody's history is interconnected with everybody else's Yeah, it's history. fascinating. It. But anyway, when the, uh, when, uh, when the Acadians were put on these boats, when they were separated by sex and put on these various boats, um, the boats were, would go, I mean, they were just going in different directions. And Acadians uh, would, uh, they were sent down the coastline. And if they went to a, a colony like Massachusetts, they were told, don't get off here, buddy. Really? Keep on. Uh, there are some Acadians in hmm. Maryland, because Maryland was a Roman Catholic colony at the time, so some there. There are a few, um, there are a few uh, Acadian families in, um, in uh, South Carolina. Uh, South Carolina, Charleston took in a few um, uh, that said that there, were, there was a Huguenot population there, so the Huguenots uh, spoke French, so there was a little connection there. Okay. But there were Acadians that went as far as the Falkland Islands in really? the dispersal. Yeah, they were set all over the place. They were just sent... Go, leave. Just broken like those refugees. Uh, yeah, I mean. eventually some Acadians got to the, which was at that time the, the Spanish colony of, of Louisiana, and they were accepted in the Spanish colony of Louisiana, uh, although they were not particularly uh, housed in New Orleans. They were sent upriver to what is called the, uh, the German coast, uh, St. James, St. John, uh, Ascension Parishes, upriver. But even then they were pushed further west towards the the. The Tesh Valley and towards uh, 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 Voyles Parish and, okay. and and so forth. They were pushed further because there were already there were settlers there already, and uh, you're dealing with a, essentially a peasant culture that had been in in Canada for a while. That didn't really go with the plantation economy that was developing in in those areas. So you have that that little bit of a change. And I'm happy. I know it. If you're like me, then you've got a long wish list of things you need to do around your house, things you just can't get to. It's not that I don't want to do them, but between my responsibilities at work, producing this show, and squeezing in some valuable mental downtime, I can't seem to get around to fixing the small stuff, and the big stuff is just waiting in line. To be honest, it kind of stresses me out. 
Maybe you're stressing out too. Well, stress no more because I've got good news. My friend Ben Von Duke has started a handyman service and he takes the mystery out of getting these things done. Ben Von Duke is not just some guy that calls himself handy. He knows what he's doing and he knows a whole lot. Not only is he an experienced and professional carpenter, but he's kind of a duke of all trades. What I love is that he's created an a la carte price list of services so you don't have to worry about getting in your pockets too deep before you're ready. He'll fix your running toilet, install appliances, replace fixtures, install ceiling fans, repair sheetrock and concrete, and a whole lot more than that. Look, I'm not too proud to say this, but sometimes it takes me three times as long to fix something because I've got to get online and search videos just to figure out what tools I need. Then I have to go buy the tools that I don't have and then kind of sort of come home and do the job. I don't have to do that anymore because Ben Von Duke will do it and do it better. On top of all that, he's just a good person, someone you can trust. He's honest, he's kind, and those are things that I value highly, and I bet you do too. You can get a hold of Ben Von Duke, the Duke of all trades, the good old-fashioned way, by using the phone. Call or text Ben at 337-540-1355. That's 337-540-1355. One three five five. He'll send you his service and price list, and trust me, his prices are more than fair. And do me a favor: when you do message Ben at three three seven five four zero one three five five, tell him you heard about the Duke of All Trades on Find the Good News. Anyway, the Acadians finally get to hear, you know, west the western edge of the Calcasieu Prairie because this is where they had to go. I mean, there was literally no place else for them to go. They, they had sort of been, you know, scooched all over the coastline of North America. Some went back to France. Some went back to France and then came back to the United States. I mean, they were in, in a great dispersal. It's called the Grand Derangement. It's, oh, okay. it's called in French the Great Dispersal because they really, the, the British notion was to actually just get rid of these people. This was the first example of this this happening. Uh, they also did something the British did, and, and uh, it, it was proven. They also did things like give infected smallpox blankets to the women. So and you're talking about like a genocide it level. It was genocide. I mean, it that's was. What it it was. I, I don't have much good to say for the, the English uh, policy in, in, uh, in uh, uh, eastern Canadian provinces. And well, the, you break people apart like that. Yeah. And then, terrible. you know, I mean, you're, yeah. you're talking about destroying a whole culture. Oh, you, you are. Know. You are. And of course, the story is part of the, it's part of the memory of the Acadian people. And it was part of the reason why the uh, uh, a friend of Longfellow, the uh, who was from St. Martinville, uh, named uh, uh, um, Albert Voorhees, gave the the sense memory to Longfellow. Longfellow wrote the poem Evangeline, ah, which tells that yeah. story. I mean, it's it's beautiful and it's, it's probably a little bit more flowery than the actual the actual reality of the situation. But it it was a story of of, of dispersing a population throughout the world, and uh, many of them settled here in South Louisiana and even this far west in South Louisiana. So, uh, because there are Acadians also in East Texas. Sure. So there you are. But anyway, that's, I don't know where we're going. Well, with that, that, but there you, we are. where you were, where's your, your interest in history? Oh, begin? my interest in history. Yeah. Oh yes. There we go. <laughs> well, I, I begin with, I begin with that. So I have these stories. I have these tales. It's still part of the sense memory of, of Southwest Louisiana of my family. And, um, uh, uh 
so I'm interested in this. You see, uh, you see the old churches, you see the old buildings in Burbridge and St. Martinville, very scenic. And, and back in, in when I was young, they were still there. Uh, many folkways were still there. Uh, uh, fast forward, uh, finish high school, go to LSU. Uh, I took history with T. Harry Williams, who was the, the uh, in his last years of teaching history. I was able to 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 uh, get some of his classes, and you really begin to think of the all of the things that that happen and all of the various interconnections that help to make uh, uh, Louisiana what it is and so you get really interested about where you are and how to read a place and mm. how to sense what what is actually going on here and and to 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 begin to explore all of the different influences that make this place different and special from every other place in the world sure and so when I when I finished the, the LSU when I graduated LSU came here you, I'm interested in you know why is this the way it is, uh -huh. and you start looking at the different. You look at the you look at the geography. I start with geography because that's the basis for for most settlement patterns. You look at the geography, and you think of it in terms of what are the what is the the growth of civilization, the growth of culture on that particular patch of ground. Yeah, and you have uh, in the in the term the old LSU term. What is the first latifundia? Well, the first latifundia, the first settlement pattern uh, uh, in this corner of Louisiana uh, are the Ishak Indians, the Atakapo okay. Indians, and of course, okay, well, Ishak Atakapo. Let's think of the stories. Well, uh, from a childhood, I heard of the Atakapos as being man eaters, cannibals, and they were oh, really? wild, and, and and that's part of the that's part of what we have. But then you go beyond that and you realize that the the uh the french explorers french and spanish explorers that came through here uh, came in contact with the natchez and the chittimacha indians first and the natchez and chittimacha had uh enemies their enemies were the atacapa okay which they viewed as wild because they were more nomadic than the the uh chittimacha and the natchez actually had village structure very much the european style Vill they lived in villages they had pottery they they uh, they wove textiles you know it was very much on an english fashion but the 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 ishak were much more nomadic. They didn't have settled villages, so they were viewed as savages by the Indians, who were viewed as savages by, by the, the, okay. the Europeans. So, interesting. So they, they interesting. so they, the, uh, the, the name, even the name, Atakapa is, is not an Ishak word. Uh, the word Atakapa means in Chittimacha means man eater. Really? So that, yeah. so they got a bum rap from the get go because we were getting <laughs> the the English the, the the white man the European settler was getting his information from Indians that were already biased towards these Indians which Double were biased, on, yeah that were living <laughs> you know living wildly and they would see the Chittimacha field and they would see the the you know oh look there's some. Uh, there's some critters over there. We're going to go and get those critters. You know, they're growing them. We're going to get... So they had these raids and they, oh, savage, savage, you know, man-eater. Yeah. So they, they were victimized that way. Well, the Ishak have their own history. It's a, it's an oral history. They, they don't have any writing, but the Ishak, in telling their own story, tell this story, which is a little bit different. Uh, the Ishak uh, is a band. Uh, they're linguistic, linguistically, they're connected with the Aztec Indians okay. and the Apaches. Okay. So they are nomadic. 
they were season they moved seasonal bands all over they would hunt deer here they would go and do oysters here they would do so forth so they moved around they didn't have the the, the settled uh, communities um, they um, did have some rituals that involved bloodletting and if in battle they would eat little bits of, of the of their foe to capture their their essence i see you, you okay. know and there are many rituals like that they they didn't i mean they didn't make a, a you know a chitamacha sandwich and eat it right it was more of a capturing their spirit it, or their energy or their power right, exactly. or something okay but Dominance. that's where the the notions of the man eaters came up i see uh so uh, so here we have the we have the ishak culture filtered through the chitamachas and the natchez who are their natural enemies and the, the europeans meet them first so they take that on as the notion so but it it means that it, it in this wild remote corner of louisiana with not not a whole lot of resources because you have to remember most of southwest louisiana is essentially marshy prairie is what it boils down to and we only have trees along the waterways so you have you don't have a whole lot of resources here and and, and we actually had buffalo here at one point you know so we're more like the plains indians and then but anyway you have these these roaming bands of, of ishak indians uh they had the sunset people which were were west of the sabine and the sunrise people which were east interesting yeah okay. so they have their own history and it's a fascinating history so you start with that you start with that and then you look at, at that why did they live the way they live well they live the way they live because of the the topography that they were dealing with mm -hmm. there the soil here is not as rich as the soil in along the tesh valley uh the, the tesh valley uh mississippi valley have soils that are i mean you have 250 feet of topsoil yeah. rich topsoil that comes from iowa and, and nebraska and, and so forth so it's very very rich you could grow crops every year without having a problem here you have a problem growing crops it's too wet it's too uh, uh the soil is not particularly rich so you have to it's your subsistence farming you're going to take advantage of of anything that you see that you can take advantage of so that explains to me why the ishak were you know developed a culture different from the natchez because ah, there's from no the reason Chitamachi. to settle right, right? i mean uh, yeah no reason to settle uh, you couldn't you would exhaust your resources very quickly if you decided to, to build a village here whereas the the uh the uh Chittimacha could have a village and 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 uh you know make their beautiful baskets and do all of the other things they need to do so there you are so you begin with the ishaks then you look at the 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 development of of, of exploration by the europeans and uh, yes it's quite possible that we had very early explorations but probably not because this is tough land to get through truly tough land to get through and there are no natural water connections except from the gulf up so you don't have the great uh the great uh investigations of the mississippi river the joliet and marquette and la salle and all that sort of thing that's all water-based exploration uh the spanish exploration which is essentially forced marches like hernando de soda's forced march in the in the 1500s sort of bypasses this because the climate isn't very good it's full of mosquitoes and if you're a spaniard uh you know wearing uh, 60 pounds of armor and <laughs> right. uh you know with lice and everything else the last place you want to be is south louisiana in the summer sure so you have some of that you so a lot of these early explorers kind of bypass this area they explored areas that were more rich where there was more gold to be found or whatever whatever excuse you want to you want to come up with so we're essentially isolated and and uh, sort of um of um 
off to the side. And it proves that because when you get to the Louisiana Purchase, we're sort of off to the side. You know, see, it's not, yeah. We're not part of the Purchase. Uh, and, and, and politically, it even continues, uh, you know, till today. I mean, there are folks in Baton Rouge that don't know that there's anything, in, you know, west of the Mississippi. Right, right. And, and uh, you know, we feel even in contemporary America, uh, Louisiana, that, that uh, western Louisiana is kind of... Uh, kind of uh, uh, of, um, unknown because it's you just pass through it. You know, if you're on your way to Houston, you pass through it. And that's about it. But I mean, it it has its own culture. It has its own its own rationale. But anyway, so I, I go with all of this, and you look at all the different influences, and then you look at the map, and you look at at things like street names in Lake Charles. Look at the street names of, yeah. of Lake Charles and Sulphur, and you'll see, oh, here's a Fitz and Ryder Road. Here's a Prater. Here's a Moling. Well, that's German. What the hell is that? <laughs> and then you, the rationale behind that, the fact that we had German settlers here in the, 18, in the 1840s, 1850s, brought by by uh, Goss, and then we have a second wave of German, German uh, settlers that come here in the 1880s when they come in because of uh, J.B. Watkins and the selling of Louisiana. And what do you mean the selling of Louisiana? Well, J.B. Watkins, because the land had always been open range, it's never been claimed. Yeah. So J.B. Watkins can come in and buy a million and a half acres of South Louisiana, and he does, mm-hmm. you know, because okay. he can't. And he says, well, what am I going to do with all this? He figures, well, I'm going to turn it into the paradise on earth where you can have, I mean, you can do four crops. You can do this or that. You can you can grow on these wide prairies because they he viewed it as farmland. He visioned farmland uh-huh. uh, uh, rather than just uh, the swamps. He brought in people to dig canals. He brought in people to teach uh, agronomy. He, he, uh, I mean, this is where Seaman Knapp comes in. This is where you have all of the, the investment in southwest Louisiana because land finally becomes valuable enough to develop into all of these various things. So you have the those, those strings, you have the nap connection that, that draws out the agriculture in southwest Louisiana uh, that takes the cattle from, from just rangy cattle all the way up to uh, to a point where we have a, a, a swift plant packing uh, center. Uh, the pictures in, in, in the book, uh, it's a six-story thing that, that processes 1,200 head of cattle a, a year. You know, you think, oh, wow. You know, you have all of these, these strings that come yeah. out of that you know it's interesting this has come up on this is the third episode where this has come up We've, we were talking about migratory patterns and we're talking about the difference between nomadic people and then agriculture and things like that but you know as i'm listening to you and i'm trying to imagine this it's all on this huge time scale it's almost like we were a land where nature was sort of in charge nature was definitely and people were moving around what what nature presented but then we hit a point where what you just where described where once, now we can once, command it, once right? we had access to the power offered by steam ah okay that's when the switch happens uh it's it's one thing to exploit timber industry if you're using a pit saw yeah. And let me explain what a pit saw was. The very earliest settlers here used pit saws. You dug a hole in the ground. Can you imagine? You'd probably be standing in water up to your knees. Yeah, bet. With a log on top of you, and you're sawing with a crosscut saw up and oh. down. Somebody at the top is pulling the saw up, and then you're sawing. You're and in so the you pit got saw. A, a tree or a log. You're a tree or a log, and you're pr- you're cutting it into 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 planks. So you're processing. Okay. You're processing raw tree into lumber. So someone's moving this through, and right. you're just you're yeah. basically right. you're the machine. Yes, you're the machine. You're doing that. <laughs> wow. That's to go crazy. from that 
to what what uh, what uh, Locke did, what uh, Perkins did, what Bradley did, what all those early lumbermen did, in, introduced the steam engine, which processed the lumber with a circular saw. You know, in its ideal, the circular saw would continue to run until you had to change the blade because you could run that 300-year-old pine, 600-year-old cypress right through it and develop a product that would sell instantly because what we're facing at, at this point when we're talking about the, the lumber industry moving from it was total exploitation you had these big trees that could not be gotten out very easily until you had the, the steam powered mill to process it and to haul it out and to get it going and you had ready markets out there uh, Galveston was the, the big ready market for southwest Louisiana and a lot of the lumber went down the Calcasieu to the Gulf and then over to Galveston where it was sold. It was used in Galveston to build buildings, uh, but it was also sold throughout the Gulf Coast and through uh, the Caribbean because it was very good material. That's Once the railroads come in, it even we, it, it even goes further. It goes out to the north and, and to the east because you are still getting out, uh, and we're talking about the, the 1880s, 1890s now, you're getting out 70 foot pieces of lumber that you know six by six and 12 by six for heavy construction uh, you're getting a lumber that that uh, the cypress which was able to withstand all sorts of of weather and termites and whatnot uh, and this was prime prime building material uh, one of the things that the the michigan men the the, uh, the uh, northerners who came to southwest louisiana and they went to other places too but in southwest louisiana they ran the lumber mills because there was still lumber to be gotten and uh they literally cut all these things out um uh, we don't know, we don't really realize that now we think oh well there's not much cypress along but back in the day before the salt water came all the way up the calcium you had cypress trees growing in Lake Charles. You had cypress oh, really? trees growing in Moss Lake. Oh yeah. oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the early images show this. Uh, and, and we're talking about cypress trees that are three, four, five, six hundred years old that were cut and processed. Uh, and it, it was processed until literally they were all cut out. Wow. You know, and... Um, uh. Uh, the, uh, the the uh, there were many many families that connect with that the, the Manigans and the uh, uh, the Powells. I mean, you're, you're talking about most of the families made their big money with timber, and it's uh, it's uh, 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 you know if you had the connection with timber and the cattle industry, you were covered. I mean, that's what this area was known for, and uh, it, it became. Um, uh, the reason for the development, the rapid development here, but it also meant that the steam uh, uh, equipment could uh, dig canals. The steam equipment could alter the surface of the land. It could um, it it could make cuts in the uh, uh, in the big oxbows of the Calcasieu river at the time they made cuts so you have like Clooney Island which is a you know right off the port of Lake Charles if you look at the map of of this area you can see that the Calcio River made all sorts of loops and the essentially uh, man has cut through all of those cuts and brought the gulf up to Lake Charles uh, you know Lake Charles and sulfur frankly because yeah. you know the industry here is dependent upon transportation down the 
the the Calcasieu River, but the Calcasieu River was not always what it is today. It was once a, a sluggish, essentially a bayou with a lot of curves and twists and uh, the very earliest settlers here used sailing vessels which took forever to get to the gulf and then when when they got to cameron they had to be literally dragged over a sandbar at the mouth of the calcasieu river and uh, since that time uh, you know we've gone through the the developments of the port of lake charles and other entities to connect us by with first along the intercoastal but afterwards all along the Calcasieu River by cutting through all of those loops which brought the gulf up and enlarged the 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 waterway from what it had been to something that that carries major vessels now I mean it's an ocean going port but it wasn't always an ocean going port it's interesting you use the word and it just has been ringing in my ears as i in my mind as i've been listening to you and you said the word exploitation yeah well yeah good. i mean that's a to know that that that's what it was like here and then now well, some but it, was, it, was, it was like that here but it was like that everywhere it's, yeah yeah right, it, you know, right. Not, it was man's domination of this of this environment yeah and it, it, uh, man and women i'm not i'm not no, no, I see. I know what yeah, you mean. yeah. Uh, man and women's uh, 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 domination of this and this environment is so very fragile because again you go back to the go back to the geography uh we're on a pleistocene terrace there are various terraces that that it's all sedimentary land there's no bedrock here there's no rock in sulfur there's no rock in lake charles it's sedimentary so you have and you have these winding bayous and it's marsh and and prairie that's what we have yeah um that land is very very and we're very low we're very low i mean we're not we're not 25 feet above sea level in here in sulfur nor are we in lake charles and you're talking about um uh, uh land that is very very susceptible to the environment that we're in we live in a storm-based environment the gulf is not 35 miles due south of us uh we're affected by that very 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 much and uh when you when you make access to the water water will have access to you it's a it's a that's a Mm no-brainer which means that as we modify the calcio river uh we have to remember that every modification every cut has a, a a direct influence on on what happens salt water has come up the river and we know that salt water was not traditionally up the river in uh, we're talking about about the uh, early 1800s because we see the trees growing in moss lake we see the trees growing in prion lake we see the trees growing in lake charles we see trees growing even in big lake so uh, these what used to be freshwater lagoons are now essentially saltwater lagoons because the 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 the, the salt water has come all the way up and we have to actually have a device to keep the salt water from going all the way to kinder really. yeah so right, right, right right so it used to not be that way i mean right. naturally it used, to not, it wasn't it used able... to not be that way because the river once curved uh according to uh, uh some of the uh, engineering done for the uh for the port uh, the distance by water from uh, the city docks of Lake Charles to the Gulf, to the open Gulf, went from like 78 or 79 miles to 33. Wow. By cutting all the cuts. And you can see all the cuts. Uh, at Devil's Elbow, the water would, I mean, all the old water would make all these twists and turns. And all these islands, Coon Island, Colonia Island, uh, and so forth, all the way down there are all cut. And that brings the, the water up. 
and I'm happy. I know you're driving down the road. Everything is going just fine. You're listening to the new episode of Find the Good News in Your Car, and you're all stoked about trying out this zipper merge thing you've been hearing about when all of a sudden you hear that sickening tap on your windshield that's just a little too loud. I've got some bad news for you. You've just got yourself a rock chip. Unfortunately, I've got some worse news. If you don't take care of that rock chip, it's going to turn into a crack. But I do have some good news too. You don't have to have a rock chip or a crack because I've got a way for you to take care of it ASAP. If you go to asapglassco.com right now, you can stop that chip from winding across your windshield like the Calcasieu River. I used to be terrible about getting a rock chip, saying I'll take care of that later, and then later turns into this irritating crack that just spreads from one side of my windshield to the other. I should have taken care of it ASAP by scheduling a repair with ASAP Glass. ASAP Glass is local, right here in Sulphur, Louisiana, and they're mobile. Even better, you can get a quote right from your mobile phone at asapglassco.com. ASAP Glass is owned and operated by two of my best friends, lifelong friends, Dan and Kayla Smith. Dan the Glass Man will make sure his team of glass technicians gets to your job ASAP and make sure it's done right so you can keep that windshield crack out of sight. If you do get that rock chip and you don't take care of it ASAP, that's okay. ASAP Glass does complete windshield replacements. Remember, ASAP Glass is mobile, so you don't have to worry about finding time to drop your vehicle off at their shop. You get your quote at asapglassco.com. Make your appointment with Kayla, and then before long, an ASAP Glass van is on its way to your location. That's it. I know you're probably looking at a rock chip right now. Don't wait. Take care of it ASAP. Go to asapglassco.com on your mobile device and get a quote. That's asapglassco.com. And make sure to tell Dan and Kayla you heard about ASAP Glass on Find the Good News. And uh, that, that does affect a lot of other things because, again, it's very fragile land we're on. There's no rock. Very, very fragile. You know, I guess I never really think about that. You know, you walk outside and you just think you're standing on solid ground. But I mean, you yeah, know, yeah. in the in the, ge- ge- yeah, the geology of the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. You really think about it. It's rolling Pleistocene mud is what you're on mostly when you walk out. There. And that's why, I mean, we drive around and you can tell, you know, the streets buckle all the time. And they, they buckle because they're not built on, on firm foundations. We're, we're, we're not like in Colorado where you can go and actually be on granite or schist or anything like that. We're on mud and uh there are ways to engineer around that certainly because i mean you can't have skyscrapers in new orleans if you didn't have means of dealing with pleistocene mud but uh, um uh, towns like like houston new orleans beaumont like charles lafayette it's all essentially built on this sort of undulating subsurface that doesn't really have any firm foundation for any major construction and and you know that's why it it's developed the way it's developed well sure i mean i was even telling some and just small i tell them my children uh one day we were in lake charles and we were on the seawall and i said well where we were standing this wasn't here you know that's and right. they're like what yeah <laughs> within yeah within her. within the lifetime we've changed you can that's a very good example those those 90 acres it was all landfill at one time the the, the shoreline of lake charles was a working shoreline sort of like the, the shoreline on, on west lake side you know where you have the the uh 
the um, sand pits and the, all yeah. this sort of thing, you know, the, the, the gravel yards and so forth. You had that sort of thing on the other side. You had warehouses, you had railroad sidings and so forth. And all that's been, been adjusted. Uh, so much of the uh, of, of Southwest Louisiana history is so plastic because we don't have that, that uh, we don't have a real sense of what it was like. It's sort of like the sulfur. Yeah, yeah. Sulfur is a beautiful example. Sulfur is a prime example of, of something that is, it was earth shattering world earth-shattering news when frash created the frash method right here in sulfur mm-hmm. and uh, the brimstone facility was creating millions and millions of dollars for the the company and the 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 italian monopoly on sulfur had been broken we now could get sulfur in, in sulfur louisiana i mean how wonderful it was and you you would see the the mines out there and you'd see the sulfur being pumped out and in, in these 100 by 400 foot yeah uh, those photos that tom has over there really blow my mind it's amazing i mean it's an absolutely phenomenal thing and yet all that is erased yeah you don't see any of that i mean you can't even get to the where the sulfur mines were uh, and and because of that, we lose that that sense of where we have been because so much of sulfur's history, so much of Southwest Louisiana's history, has been essentially erased. Not necessarily willfully erased, but the fact that we're, we're we live in an area with uh, you know with hurricanes and uh, eighty inches of rain and uh, you know all sorts of mold and mildew and three kinds of termites and everything else is out there designed to get rid of what heritage we have in, yeah. in, in in real form that it's it's difficult because we have to continuously tell the stories because if you didn't know you wouldn't know you know yeah. if you didn't know you wouldn't know about the lumber if you didn't know you wouldn't know about the sulfur if you didn't know you wouldn't know about the cattle uh you know and there there are hints there are hints you know it's mcneese cowboys and now we know why and you know uh, we have Fitz and Ryder Road in Prater Street. We know why. You know we know why there's brimstone in in, right. in brimstone. You know it, it's it. But those little those little hints can easily be forgotten unless you have uh, uh, you know a good sense of local history. And you do. Well, I do, but the thing is, it's not it's not particularly common. Yeah, uh, you know, no, it isn't. most people don't know their history, and uh, it's particularly difficult here because so many people who are even native born to 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 Louisiana, to Southwest Louisiana don't know the history, but. We have a lot of young people and people from other areas that come in because the opportunity here in Southwest Louisiana has always been ripe. You came to Southwest Louisiana to work. And people have done that for 250 years. Still doing it. Still doing it. And it, it, there's opportunity here, but you come here, you work, and then you might go somewhere else to retire. And the thing is, people who are passing through the economy don't necessarily have a stake in the economy, don't necessarily need to know the past, they just need to know that they're paychecks are not going to bounce. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So the people who are native born people and the people who choose to live here really need to know something about the the absolutely fascinating history and the rich history and the different from the rest of Louisiana, different from the rest of the South, different from the rest of the nation history that we have here because it's it we have history from so many different directions, pulling in so many different directions and coming in from so many different influences that it's uh, particularly special. 
Well, you know, I mean, that's something I think about quite often. I said, you know, there's there's generations of children that are growing up in the world without a sense of place because they don't know where they've came from. That that history of their maybe their just their particular family hasn't been shared with them, mm-hmm. and uh, they don't know who they are. They don't know where they come from. They don't have any culture that they can cling to. Mm-hmm. Then they they may not have a faith that they can cling to. They just don't even know where they come from, and so then they're. And then they move around 10, 12 times. You know, don't don't set down roots. I honestly think it does something to your psyche. Yeah, well, it does. Because if you're just a windblown seed, it's hard to, to, to make connections if you're just a windblown seed. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's you know, some, granted, sometimes you have to be that way. And sometimes you have to be that way because of economy, but uh, the economics. But the, the fact of the matter is, in terms of, of the building of community and the building of place, you have to have something to, to, to root it in yeah and you know the 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 this area is um, uh, an exceptional area and it's a, it, it doesn't drag the uh, the old south with it particularly um, it, it, oh, yeah, it, okay. it you know really it doesn't drag the old south because we we you know yes we were part of the south and yes there were people who owned slaves in southwest Louisiana and that's you know that's proven but um, the the um, uh, there's a certain, um, I don't know, humor or willingness to work uh, 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 under different circumstances here. Uh, one of the uh, one of the things that that. Uh, this was the area where you you might have had slaves, but you worked alongside your slave. You didn't, no, I you didn't necessarily send them out six hundred picking cotton because we just didn't have that kind of economy here. We just did not have the the sort of economy that uh, the people along the Mississippi River or the Red River faced in terms of the way they 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 are built. Yeah, uh, you know they're built slightly differently here. You had new beginnings, new starts, and that we that's a good thing to. Yeah, and it sounds like from listening to what you're saying is really we're kind of in a unique situation to have a really a multicultural economy. It, right? it is. I mean, it, it is a multicultural economy, and it, it's pretty diverse. And it's not it's not so overwhelmingly based on one particular thing. Um, uh, it's not here. The price of oil is not going to kill us. It can go up or down. It doesn't really. It's not really going to. I mean, it affects everybody in the South, frankly, everybody in the United States. But it's not as as so it's not as dependent as it would be in lafayette for example mm, in lafayette okay. the price of oil is un, uh, i mean it's first and foremost the reason for lafayette to exist uh, uh here uh, yes we have that as a but we also have these other things that are in place and it's a little bit more diverse when it happens that way it, it, not to say that we don't have boom and bust we certainly do have boom and bust but it's not nearly as um as uh one industry dependent as some places yeah uh and part of it is that we're not uh i mean we don't have very much population here i mean we only have i mean the, the entire parish of calcio has maybe two hundred thousand people you know and that's not a huge amount considering that it's almost 800 square miles uh that's not that's not uh, you know a lot of people on the ground uh, and uh, there's still some opportunity, there's some flexibility and opportunity here that may not necessarily be available everywhere in the state or everywhere in the country. Uh, we have opportunity here because uh, essentially we're still growing. 
Yeah. You know, we're still deciding who we're going to be and where we're going to be. It's very interesting. What what kind of touchstones do people have here that they can like really see today where they can go, oh, that's history right there. I mean, you know, I know there was the, the fire of 1910. Like you said, it's kind of a great eraser, you know, and knocks and, and wipes a lot of things out. Well, but. the thing, the thing uh, as far as touchstones, the for me, architecture is the way you have to look at, at, at you know, what our the pioneer families did and to get some understanding of, of what's here but for example if you take the brimstone facility which is fabulous we love the brimstone facility but you have to remember it's been moved three times from right. where it originally was right. so you have to remember the context of, of what we have we have all of our history to me is so precious because there's so little of it left Ah. And efforts to retain it and to preserve it, even if you have to move it, is better than just tearing it down. And um, uh, the uh, uh, we do have a preservation society in Calcutta Parish that actually is for the entire parish, and we we want to mark places that are important to history because we've lost so many of them. Okay. And uh, uh, the thing is, history for me is is something that that is an economic, social, religious motivator for the community. So old churches are wonderful. Yeah. Support your old churches. It's great because somebody had faith, you know, in 1911, 1912, 1913, and they built the cathedral. And the cathedral is, says, we're going to be here. We want to be here. This is where we are. This is what we are. So you, you take that and use that as an example. Uh, you look at Temple Sinai. Temple Sinai, there, were, there was a Jewish community in Southwest Louisiana from the very beginning. Uh, important uh, leaders of the community. Here we are. This is what we are. Here we are. It, we made our statement. You know, um, and it, you know, in sulfur, uh, if you look at the the adaptive reuse of the judicial center, which was once a Catholic church, yeah, hooray, yeah, because it's better than tearing the thing down. Because the people who are who are, I think it was prompt secretary, prompt yeah, yeah, that's right. You take prompt secretary. Well, they have their own history. They're in a new facility, but their history, you can say, before here we were here, and now that building, we we it was important enough. It was uh, it, that it's adaptively reused for something else, and we can tell it tells a story. It tells a story of use when it was built. It tells a story of use after it was outgrown by its congregation. The point is that old buildings are not just old buildings. They have to have a if they have a purpose and if they have a life afterwards, you begin to, you can connect, instead of tearing them down, which tears down all the memories and tears everything, loses everything, adaptively use them for something else. And that change says that you can have a life as well. Yeah. Buildings have a life too. And, um, um, again, it's difficult because we're in a climate that is, um, uh, it's not conducive to building maintenance. Buildings are difficult to maintain because they're physical structures in an environment in a climate that is really difficult. Foundation is not good. The, you know, thick, rain, you know, drain. I mean, every excuse you can come up with is there. But if you build right, you, a building can outlive its original use and many other uses. Yeah. And that's part of our problem. I don't like disposable architecture. No, I, I agree. You know, I had, and and there may be a lot of people but that have done this, but uh, for me, it was a nice treat. I had to go film an event last November, and they wanted to have some time-lapse photography. And the best location was to go up inside the clock at 1911. I'd never been up there. Yeah, it's cool. Oh, wow. I mean, I was like, you know just to not hurry up and just get up there and do the job i wanted to take my time because you know just walking up those 
old stairs and touching the wood and just to think, you know, it's sort of like a little time yeah. capsule yeah. here. Yeah, the buildings have, you can hear old buildings. You can <laughs> yeah. smell old buildings. And I'm not saying it's just from the must and the mold. The, the deal is buildings have a life themselves. And in terms of telling a story, it's the best prop you have to tell a story. I guarantee you, it would be a lot easier to tell the story of the lumber industry in southwest Louisiana if we had a sawmill that was still in place. Yeah. It would be a whole lot easier to tell the story of the sulfur industry in, in southwest Louisiana if we still had one of the gigantic bins where the sulfur, the wet sure. sulfur was allowed to settle. And you could say, look at this thing. Is this impressive? And you know they had to blow this up and, and it, it was put into, into, into railroad cars and car it out this way it you know those stories are so much easier to tell because you have the prop in front of you yeah and when you have the prop it's so much easier for people to understand the, the what ha, what it was like a hundred years ago yeah because you have the prop here we have so few props left um when i do tours of the, the of lake charles one of the things that that uh, is a big surprise for a lot of people is that we had a streetcar system in lake charles and it, it was there for about 35 years and the streetcar system would have been would have completely changed the way the city grew it had it been allowed to continue yeah you know and it uh, there it was uh, there are only five cities in louisiana that had streetcar systems new orleans is the only one that does now and of course new orleans streetcars that's a big tourist thing in new orleans yeah. i mean my god they love the st charles streetcar and the others but we had streetcars in lake charles and uh it, interestingly enough and this is one of the things that uh, the city of lake charles doesn't like me to say this but i'm gonna say it uh, <laughs> we're in we the had, wild west you yeah we're in the wild west uh, the, when we had the streetcar <laughs> system in lake charles the 35 years we had it for a time the streetcar ran 24 hours a day and seven days a week really yeah and the reason for that was that the big industry was the sawmills and the sawmills ran 24 hours a day uh -huh. seven days a week because once you got the saws going and steam powered you just ran that that lumber in constantly yeah they okay. were processing 60 million square uh, 60 million board feet of lumber uh at a time in, in like Charles, I mean that was a month's production, sixty million square. Uh, I mean sixty million board feet of it. That's a lot of board feet, and so the the, the sawmills would go twenty four hours a day, and so the streetcars went seven. It was a twenty four hour day, twenty four hour work day, twenty four hour economy, twenty four hour public transportation. Ah. Gotcha. See? Wow, that's interesting because even now, now when we say that, people go, "Oh, we live in a twenty-four hour world." Yeah, we say we it don't. like it's. We say it like that's new, though. But there was time it's when not. <laughs> it's not. And the thing is, uh, there, there's a certain practicality in accepting that you have a twenty-four hour uh, workday, and, and we do. And I mean, Southwest Louisiana, uh, particularly nowadays, when you have the plants and you have the casinos, which are both twenty-four hour operations. Right. Frankly, uh, why don't we have twenty-four hour, you know, uh, transportation? It's sort of like, oh, well, people have to get to work. Kids have to get to school. People have to yeah. get to church. Why not have 24-hour uh, operations? It, it, it's bizarre. But in any case, uh, you know, the, the things change. Things remain the same. <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have thought that I would hear you say anything in the past that was about a 24-hour yeah. uh, world. But we, we would talk about that like that's new. I, I no, it's not new. No, no, it's not new at all. In, in fact, I mean, there was a longer working period. I mean, the, the, hour, the idea of it eight-hour workday was not something that a uh, hundred years ago they would have even accepted I mean that's a that's a fairly modern concept back then you might have worked 10 or 12 hours a, a day and lordy if you had to do that then 
you needed transportation to get around. I mean, unless you had your own horse or bicycle and heaven forbid car because you couldn't afford a car. Yeah. So Lost Lake Charles, I mean, when you write this, is this, this is sort of like your, uh, I guess, passion project. Yeah. I mean, you get to share some of these. It was my passion project. It was, it's so difficult to tell the story of this area. And I'm talking not just like Charles, all of Southwest Louisiana. It's so difficult to tell the story because so much of the history, so much of the actual props are erased. Yeah. And when the props are erased, you have to start thinking, well, why are they erased? Well, in some cases, like the Great Fire, that, that's that's true. I mean, progress, you know, you have to think of that too. Progress happens. Uh, the unique geography of, of the way we are here, uh, rail lines, for example, are traveling a very narrow corridor. Uh-huh. Uh, at one time, Kansas City Southern and Southern Pacific had to run lines, I mean, not 300 yards apart. Because there was only one place across the river. I see. You know, and uh, it, again, get moving around. Southwest Louisiana has always been difficult, and it's it, you know we think of it. Oh, it's a it's a, a twenty nineteen problem. No, it's not. It's always been there's always been a difficulty because the unique geography of Southwest Louisiana is such that that there are there are ridges where the roadways are, and if you don't, then you're gonna you better get some very tall hiking boots because you're gonna be in the muck. Yeah, pretty yeah. Soon. Well, that makes a lot of sense. My grandmother, uh, she's 90-something years old, and she was talking about when my aunt was born, how you had to get across the Calcasieu. And I was just blown away. I said, because we just don't think about that now. There was no bridge. I mean, complicated uh, travel was isn't a new thing. Yeah, complicated travel is not difficult. It's not new at all. And, uh, uh, you know, the very first... Um well, the very first uh, settlers here had to cross with, with pirogues and dugouts and then rope ferries, you know, and, and uh, uh, which, again, we have a little bit of a history of that when you think of Goss Ferry Road and Anthony Ferry Road and Perkins ah, Ferry Road. the names are in the road. The names are in the road. Uh, at the end of each of those roads, there was a rope ferry that was operated by the Perkins family or the Goss family or whatever. And that's how you got across the, the, the Calcasieu. Getting across, getting from Lake Charles to Sulphur has not ever, ever been easy. Um, when uh, when we had uh, uh, you know a lot of lumber, um, the uh, like Charles was used as a holding pond for cut lumber. Uh, trees were cut, branded as to which mill they belonged to, and then they were fished out of the water. Really? Okay. And so you could, for a time, you could actually walk from Lake Charles to Westlake if you were very agile. You could walk on the logs, I guess, to cross the Calcasieu. That's wild, <laughs> uh, man. But. Um, it's it's always been a challenge and of course the old timers remember i mean really old timers remember that we used to have ferries across the calcasieu there was the uh uh the the hazel was one ferry and the the borealis rex was another ferry that that transported people down to cameron you know which was the only way to get to cameron frankly before they even had gravel roads to get to cameron so it's been a it's a it's a uh it's always been a, a kind of an interesting an interesting um I don't know, uh, unusual way of getting from here to there. Yeah. Well, I've been passed a note to ask you about the Preservation Society's Lost Landmarks Project. Oh, my heavens, yes. Well, Lost Landmarks is one of the things that tries to to address some of the the uh, erasures that we've had and um, uh, one of the things that that might be very useful uh, let me tell you a little bit about the program then i'm going to ask for help from people who are listening to this this podcast um 
the Lost Landmarks is uh, really a continuation of a Southwest Historical Association's project to mark the sites of lost building structures, whatnot, that were important to the history of Southwest Louisiana. Uh, we've marked places like the Majestic Hotel, okay, and uh, Goldband Records, and Balls Auditorium, and uh, the Louisiana Baptist Orphanage, and a lot of sites. There are about 15 sites that are marked. And every year we, we are challenged to find three more landmarks to mark. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, we, we are working right now on the, uh, the list for 2019-2020. Uh, it's an expensive process. We, the, the Preservation Society has to generate money in order to put these signs, which tell a thumbnail history on the actual site where the structure was. Tells the thumbnail history, directs you to the website of the Preservation Society. It gives you more information and links to other resources. So if you want to know more about Ball's Auditorium, you can go to the website. You can, you can read about Ball's Auditorium, or you can learn about the what happened to the Louisiana Baptists when the orphanage shut down in 1926. So, our St. Charles Academy or, or any of the number of other places. Well, uh, we are looking for, for new sites and, and uh, we're, we're trying to uh, we're trying to encourage people to provide us links and leads to new I sites. I see, okay. So, uh, we've already had a couple of interesting leads. There are folks that are interested in, in marking uh, the site of uh, the Chateau Charles. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, the Chateau Charles, a fascinating building, mm. uh, a wonderful example of uh, what it was like mid-century. It was a motor hot, motor hotel, is yeah. what they called well, it. Was so. kind of the on, one of the only things like that around here. It, it was, it was. And it was very it was very prestigious in its day. That's, uh, Elvis stayed there. Now it's just a parking lot, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah its water system was contaminated, and they, it had to shut down because its water system was My contaminated. My mother was a, um, a maid there whenever oh. I was a oh. young, 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 young boy. Oh, well, I mean, you know, we used to eat there. I mean, it was a fabulous place to eat. And we're thinking that the, the but we need that story. So the, the, the uh, we have a shout out to the Tullis family to give us the Tullis family history and uh, we want images of that we, and it, seriously it's one of the buildings that needs yeah. to be looked at but we are looking for other candidate properties too and uh, you can't just say oh well i think barden's needs to be marked or our joseph's pizza needs to be marked or the new moon theater needs to be marked we would like some some candidate properties from west cal too yeah because it west cal history is it, just like like charles history west cal history is needs to be shared it needs to be out there so this is a particular um, effort uh, for listeners. If you do have candidate properties of, of structures that were important to the history of Southwest Louisiana, to contact the Preservation Society, uh, either at their Facebook page or their website, uh, calcutiapreservation.org, or on Facebook, it's Calcutia Preservation Society. And, it's our preservation. and just message us. Let us know. Give us the history of the site. Uh, if you have information about, for example, the uh, the uh, uh, the Chateau Charles, then uh, tell us some of that history. As I say, we do have a shout out to the uh, to the Tullis family, who were the last owners, to give us some of the history because the uh, guest list was spectacular yeah that's what i've heard yeah and it would be wonderful to, to to be able to share that history because there's absolutely nothing left of it and that's one of the one, one of the sad things is that we we do have buildings that have been determined to be disposable and they're they're gone and once they're gone those memories are gone too unless you have something that tells that story it's interesting how that works i mean you know and i, and I couldn't tell you the particulars of it but i think it's uh 
the residue of memories, I guess, that you don't really have landmarks to, or you do have where landmarks are important. So when I was a kid, I had to have uh, ear surgeries in Shreveport, Louisiana, but I was very young. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I got older and I would go to Shreveport, I'd always take the interstate mm-hmm. and just blow right up there and get come back. But then I had to get off one time and I ended up taking some backcountry roads. And I mean, even as an adult, I would go, this looks familiar. This building looks familiar. This mm-hmm. looks familiar. You go through these little towns and this gas station is old. A lot of these things are shut down. They're gone. But there's something special about being able to actually see that it's and touch the, it. It's know? the prop that you need to have to tell the story. It's a memory aid. Yeah. And it, 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 if you can have the memory aid serving a contemporary purpose, it's wonderful. I mean, uh, for example, Calcimarine Bank, Calcimarine National Bank has, I mean, for people who are uh, bankers might remember it. People who are who are uh, interested in the the Burton or the Lawton families, you have a connection there. Uh, but if you had somebody got married there, you I mean, it has a life beyond its original purpose, and that's part of it. The stories it has to tell can be told whether it's a bank an event center or something else as long as it's still there yeah once it goes once it becomes a vacant field it no longer has the power to tell stories it no longer has that power and that's something that we should never erase our history you know uh sometimes the the history it needs to be there the structure the site the 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 thing needs to be there just so that we it, it marks a spot in time when this was the way it was whether right or wrong this was the way it was yeah and it, it needs to tell that story elsewise we have nothing to base our culture on yeah you know some places for me and it's interesting the timing we're having this conversation places for me that i can do that are cemeteries yeah they, they tend to not change from the inside right so if you if you go to an old cemetery that you've frequented and maybe you have memories there or maybe loved ones there or it's a place uh that you just like to get away to which i do because they're very peaceful I, f- I like to go there because it doesn't change i can go to the interior or the oldest parts mm-hmm. and it feel like uh it's captured it's protected mm-hmm. you know yeah. yeah if you go to antioch bigwood cemetery uh if you go to the central yeah. part of that it's pretty much the way it was 70 years ago or today yeah uh, it, it doesn't need to be maintained i mean every cemetery again has to deal with the issues that we deal with here because we are in a particularly uh uh, bad climate ecologically speaking for structures uh, and so we have to be really really sensitive to these things uh, you live on the coast you have coastal issues that have to be tended to but you're right cemeteries are are a great example of w- telling those stories and whether it's it's Antioch Big Woods or uh, Henning or uh, uh, Bilbo Cemetery yeah. or you know Salier or any of those there are stories that are told that can only be told because the, the memorials are there that, that can make those connections it's very interesting I was out at um, it's not uh, Consolata but whatever's right next to Consolata yeah, Prion Pines. Pines. Pines and I stopped there one day between meetings to go take a walk and then um, I hadn't been out there in months and I walked by Elton Louvier's grave and then as I kept walking, I walked by a Beverly Pittman, the owner of KD's uh, stone. And I said, you know, this right here, just that sector, 
captures a moment, a, a particular section of time. Here's some people who had businesses. Here's an artist that made an impact all just in this row. And, you know, cemeteries are clustered that way a mm -hmm. lot of times. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll have this little bit of time where mm -hmm. a, a particular set of experiences happened or history happened. Uh, exactly. Uh, in, in Lake Charles, interestingly enough, um, there are two cemeteries that I have a particular affinity for because there are huge monuments there that some folks may not know about. Um, after the Audrey hurricane, um, the there were bodies that were found for months and months and months afterwards, and there were unidentified remains too. And there are two cemeteries uh, that happen to have the uh, the remains of the unknown oh. from Audrey. Um, uh, Highland Memorial Gardens on Gulf Highway is one, and Cambrai. Uh, cemetery up on Opelousa Street is the other. Really, and there are large patches that are are dedicated to the the, the bodies that were found and unidentified and unclaimed. So it's like a mass. Uh, they're they're mass graves for the two, and um, uh, it's there's there's a, a, a sadness there because forever, the residents of Cameron Parish and the residents of of, of Calcutta Parish are connected by that tragedy. Sure, and the unknown being buried in those two mass graves uh is a uh, uh, to me it's it's a chilling sort of thing yeah because yeah. it's just within my memory it's just within my memory audrey i was um, about four or five years old for audrey okay you must and, be the same age as my mother oh my god i hate to think that <laughs> that's probably true but I do re recall my, my father had been working, He like a lot of people in St. Martin Parish, he was in St. Martin Parish, had worked in, in Calcutta. He came here to, to, to work, and he worked here for a while, and he knew some folks from Cameron, and after the, the horrible storm, uh, probably uh, maybe October of 57, he took the back roads, and uh, we went to Cameron, and uh, one of the very first memories I have, and this is as a wee wee child, is the smell. Oh wow! Because that we happened to come on a day when they were burning uh, trees and and cattle and whatnot that had been drowned up, and where you know it was a, a, a hygiene issue. Uh, this, even at that point, they were burning all of this stuff, and it was the smell of Cameron uh, after the, the storm. I still have that in my memory. Oh, and what a great history re-stimulator right yeah, there. Smell. Really, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a spectacular. And, and so there's, there's, a, there's a connection there because the people who have firsthand experience of Audrey are now on their way out. And so the that second stand, they're going to have a different experience of Audrey. I I remember the smell of Audrey mm. as well as the the sight of seeing the trees blown down and the houses ripped up and all this sort of thing. Uh, but but those memories are going to be passing on. You know when I go, and I don't know that that young folks know that. that no, that sensation. No, no, no. I mean, so that's, that's... it's kind of cool. It's it's cool and interesting. It's it's part of the. Uh, it's part of the. Uh, of the, uh, the the process, so we have to uh, we have to be very encouraging of efforts that that remind us of our history. And uh, uh, I, I just want to do a shout out to the the folks over at the Brimstone because yeah. they, they're doing some some very creative things to to give us some of that history back because some of it has changed and, and uh, the the caretaker uh, properties that they're reworking on and reconstructing to try to give an idea of what it was like to be in West Cal is a vital part of, of what 
needs to happen in communities like sulfur because we need to know our past i have to say tom listens to this show oh good tom he does he's been on the show he listens to this show and you know i told him i said every single time somebody brings up the brimstone somebody mentions their efforts over there oh yeah and that's good i'm glad to hear yeah, it's that good kind of well it's it's a wise use of resources to to uh, the the henning building too uh, and the fact that brimstone i mean it, it the, the fact that it's been moved twice is to me amazing because it would have been so easy to make other decisions, you know, and and it shows that there's a certain resolve in keeping the uh, in keeping this thing going because it 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 is so difficult, and particularly difficult here because so much of the population of sulfur is not a native. To, to this area they come in to work and you know they pass through and hopefully their time here is a wonderful time with great memories but um it, it, we have to we have to keep that that urgency and try to keep those reminders of the past here as much as possible well on that note i mean is and i'm just curious and there may be many but is there one thing that sticks out to you that we are in really severe danger of losing and whether a landmark of some sort or um, a place that's maybe just not identified that really needs to be you know it's hard to pinpoint one particular spot <clears throat> to me the thing that is most frightening is that uh, our general area, and we're ta- I'm talking about all southwest Louisiana, is so fragile that uh, the next big storm, mm. we can see whole things washed out. Uh, I- I'm, I'm reminded of the, the major, major changes since uh, Harvey and Rita in Cameron. Yeah. Where, you know, before that, and, and Audrey even before that, uh, uh, there are entire cultures along the coast that have been erased totally. Yeah. You know, Cameron as a community, uh, as a, 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 a town built around that, that courthouse, has gone through three or four lives and mm. it's been completely washed away. And pretty much now it's difficult. You have to live somewhere else and come to Cameron. Yeah. And, um, the, the thing is, the same thing that could happen with Cameron and Holly Beach could happen just as easily with Greywood or with Carlos. Yeah. Because you, the, the next line of defense is right, is right there. It, it's, we're, the whole area is very, very fragile. Uh, a super storm, a super hurricane could very easily knock out anything that's below, let's say, 25 feet above sea level very easily you know and uh, that's what i'm concerned with i mean we're, we talk about buildings and buildings are very important but but the entire substrate of this area can be so easily manipulated by weather yeah that uh, uh that's what i'm concerned with we, we need to be very very cautious about about that and all the other things that lead to that yeah um uh, it, it's uh well, overdevelopment's not a, not gonna help either i mean no. um too too much too fast you know i mean we have warnings from other communities oh yeah like we that, do you know? we do and and that's why it's it's um it, it, it's uh i mean we see it but how well is that lesson learned all right you know? well the profits profits drop many things and sometimes it's not always good <laughs> yeah, sense well yeah the, the, the odd <laughs> thing is though that we have to remember that the, the profits that remain home are the ones that, that are used to repair where their problems <laughs> right. uh, and it's good that that uh, corporate our corporate uh, residents are uh, aware that, that they have an investment that has to be protected too and, and maybe that's the way to approach it yeah I gotcha. um, right. I, I, I'm reminded about um, the, the perhaps the most resilient symbol of southwest louisiana to my mind 
uh, is something that you may not know about, but I'm a real keen supporter of, is the Sabine Lighthouse. You know, I've never been to the Sabine you Lighthouse. You need to go to the Sabine Lighthouse. Uh, it's, um, it's, um, it was authorized by Martin Van Buren. Really? Uh, 1856. I've only seen pictures. Well, uh, let me tell you, the, the Sabine Lighthouse, which there is a, a, an active proposal now to, to, to stabilize it and do has withstood hurricane after hurricane after hurricane it's right at the very tip edge of louisiana uh it's um it's uh, uh one of the few lighthouses you can actually go and look at just drive down 82 and you can take a little side road and take your glasses and look at it it's it's fabulous and it to me is the real symbol of southwest louisiana because this brick structure out in the middle of absolutely nowhere it's it's at the corner of the 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 the, uh, the state has withstood world war one world war two the korean war it's withstood uh uh, the Spanish-American War. It's probably the oldest masonry structure uh, west of the uh, uh, of the Tesh Valley and and south of Alexandria. It's that important to the area. Uh, it's absolutely vital to Texas uh, uh, navigation because it was the the guiding light into the Sabine River into the the trade in uh, Beaumont and Port Arthur and all that, that, that was their, their lighthouse. Uh, of course, Calcasieu Lighthouse is gone. We used to have one as well, but this one is still in place. And it's Louisiana's lighthouse. And it's a, it's a fabulous symbol of how to build, even back then in the 1850s, they knew how to build with the wings to, uh -huh. to, to push the weight out over the wide area. And, so fascinating uh, yeah. listening to you describe that i mean and and i could i could honestly and you might you may not agree but i could compare the way you keep this history to that lighthouse ah well there you are i really can i mean because yeah. it's resilient oh, it has to be done um it's very important to have good foundation it's very good to know you know where you've come from and how to move forward into the future yeah. whoever built that lighthouse obviously was thinking about all of that hopefully hopefully it was it, it, anyway there there's work out there now to to help support it the uh, so it's a shout out to uh, andy tinkler and the folks at the calc shoe at the uh, cameron preservation alliance which is doing all they can to to keep that building up and moving uh in fact they even have licenses now that you can get license plates now as a little plug to them really yeah you can get a, a sabine lighthouse plate and uh, i would certainly encourage listeners to do that if you can it supports the efforts of of preservation of that particular oh wow are there lots of plates like that uh not very many it's just started oh, i mean wow. it, it, it just came on yeah it just came online i believe in february so early part of february so i mean you can get a low number you probably get you know a two-digit number but it would certainly support the efforts of the yeah of the i actually would encourage people to do that i i actually would like to do that myself i didn't yeah. know that well yeah if you're if you don't want to support mcneese or you don't want to support uh, uh so we have a problem in our family because i'm lsu melinda my wife is uh <laughs> Uh, went to Louisiana Tech. I see. So okay. it would have to be a, a LSU La Tech thing, and they don't have that plate. But so so we, we've uh, yeah we're waiting for our license plate to come in. But um, yeah, if you don't, if you have, uh, if you're, if the husband is a McNeese and the wife went to uh, some other school, you cannot have unless you have more than one car. Get a Sabine Lighthouse plate because then, <laughs> then you, you're, you're sort of split the difference because it's definitely uh, it's definitely a, an effort that needs 
needs to be supported because to me it really is the symbol of of the entire region it's not just cameron's lighthouse uh in fact at the time it was it was constructed it was in calcio parish oh really yeah it was part of imperial county at that point um uh, cameron didn't get set up as its own parish until 1870 and this lighthouse began in 18 1856 i think they started work on it and the light it worked for as a lighthouse for 90 years uh now there's a directional uh, beacon further out but uh the, the point is there was a lighthouse keeper uh, station there uh it uh, the uh, famous battle the texas civil war battle of uh, of um Sabine Pass, you know, the two battles of Sabine Pass where Dick Dowling fought and all this stuff okay. takes place right there. Uh, Texas' most famous Civil War battle happens on Louisiana soil, so there you are. Uh, <laughs> that tells you how important it is, not only to Louisiana, but also to Southeast Texas. So it's a shout out to any of your listeners in Southeast Texas. If you can, get a Louisiana, buy a car in Louisiana and get a license plate in Louisiana to help support the effort uh, because it is indeed the, the, the western Louisiana, southwest, uh, Southeast Texas. Texas lighthouse it, it is the big lighthouse and um, it's a remarkable piece of uh, of history that we still have and it goes back to 1856 pre-civil war that's incredible it, you wouldn't think it and i'm happy i know it. this episode's fishing for goodies fishbowl sponsor is brimstone museum and henning cultural center in sulfur louisiana I don't know what you look for when you travel, but one of the things I look for when I'm putting together my itinerary is a unique museum or gallery in the city I'm traveling to. I do this almost every time I go to a new city, but if I'm being honest, I'm guilty of not always doing that very thing right here at home in Sulphur, Louisiana. That's really a shame because we have one of the most interesting, historically relevant, and culturally rich corners in any city in the country about two minutes from where I'm sitting right now. I'm talking about the Brimstone Museum and Henning Cultural Center. Have you ever really thought about why our city is named Sulphur? They've got a permanent exhibit on the history of the sulphur industry that answers that simple question and more. You really get a full scope of just how important the sulphur mining industry was to the development of Southwest Louisiana and the impact it had on the rest of the world. Yes, the rest of the world. On the same property, right next door to the museum, is the Henning Cultural Center, presenting some of the most interesting, modern, and culturally relevant local art shows I've ever seen. My dear friend Tom Trahan and the Brimstone Historical Society have really worked hard to give us this treasure, and it's a multifaceted jewel that I plan to take advantage of more often. You don't have to wonder what their hours are, or how to get there, or what shows are coming up. Just go to brimstonemuseum.org, like I did, and subscribe to their mailing list right there on the homepage. That's brimstonemuseum.org. Tom will make sure you start getting the announcements for each and every new show at the gallery. But you don't have to wait for the mail to arrive to enjoy this historical local treasure. You don't have to be guilty, like me, of overlooking a local wonder that conveniently sits next to the Grove, one of the most beautiful walking parks in southwest Louisiana. Drop in and say hi to Tom for me. Tour the museum and center, and make sure to tell Tom that you heard about Brimstone Museum on Find the Good News. Now, let's take that dive in the fishbowl. I'll tell you, this has been a ton of fun. I could actually probably listen to this all day. There is a part of this show, if you've ever listened to it, called Fishing for Goodies. Yep. And this fishbowl is full of questions, uh. and you get to draw three three and then we'll discuss them 
And I don't know what they all are. These are some of them from past guests. And, uh... Huh, this is interesting. Yeah, and I don't know what you're going to get. And some of them are from a uh, writing deck. There's all kinds of things in there. Oh, really? Yeah, and I've been surprised a few times. Okay, three, huh? Okay, here we go. This Here's should be the... fun. Okay. Which character from a movie or, or book would you most like to meet and why? Oh, my heavens. Let's There's see. probably a few, uh, huh? Probably a few. Describe what life would be like in three years if you don't allow your bad habits to stop you. Oh, my God. <laughs> write a letter to someone who has impacted your life. You don't have to write a letter. We're the last uh, person who pulled that one, we just okay. discussed it. Okay, well, all right. Okay, well, let's start with uh, describe what life would be like in three years if you don't allow your bad habits to stop you. Well, if I don't allow my bad habits to stop me, I'd probably... Um, well, I, I, I'd probably need to lose weight. I'm old. I'm old and cranky, and I need to take care of my health because, it's, you know, you have to look at the other end of of existence as far as it goes. In fact, just before we began this, uh, my oldest cousin called me to say that her husband had passed away. And uh, you, when you get to a certain age, you begin to think of mortality sure. a little bit more, more poignantly. And um, when something like that happens, you say, well, I've got to correct my ways and, you know, exercise. Lost landmark. That's right. I'll be a lost landmark That's too. Right. That's so right. So there you are. Improve your ways, Adley Cormier. <laughs> uh, um, which character from a book or movie would you most like to meet, and why? <sighs> wow. Gosh, I really have to think about that. Mm, write a letter to someone who has impact. Well, the letter that I'd like to write probably would be to my high school French teacher. Believe it or not, yeah, her name okay. was her name was Jean Castile. Uh, and she was, uh, um, her family was a, a Cajun family from southwest Louisiana. On, on her mother's side, they were Thibodeaux's. Castiles are actually uh, French, directly from France, as far as southwest Louisiana goes. And uh, she really encouraged me to, uh, to study. Uh, I, interestingly enough, as a, as a kid, I was, lived in in St. Martin Parish and when I was a child in high school uh, St. Martin Parish had a, 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 a not particularly good reputation it, it it had the lowest literacy its literacy was 66th in the state and that was at a time when there was an independent school system in Monroe it was the last school system in the state as far as literacy went and Louisiana was the last state in the nation uh, as far as literacy so we were the bottom of the bottom of the barrel and one of the things that, that the school board did in St. Martin Parish back then this was in the late 60s early 70s they decided that they were going to improve the teaching quality and one of the teachers that they brought in was John Castile uh -huh. and John Castile uh, really encouraged all of her students and particularly me to uh, to continue and to do well and to uh, uh, one of those teachers that fires you up to learn. Yeah. And she was one of those teachers that fired you up to learn. That's awesome. And uh, it's uh, I would write a letter to her thanking her for that that service. And uh, uh, so uh, uh, Jean, she's gone now, but uh, she's been long gone, and her entire family's gone. But there's a little shout out to Jean Castile. I find that very powerful that you brought that up. You know, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be blessed here in a few weeks to actually have the teacher. That was the same thing in my life. My speech teacher in high school really changed my life. How wonderful. And she's actually going to come on the show. How fabulous. And I'm, I'm hearing you say that makes me realize how blessed I am 
to be able to sit across. Sometimes you have those interactions with people that that, that that give you a little bit of faith in yourself and a willingness to go on and make the best of yourself. And they're not, they're not. Um, I don't think they're recognized. Sometimes I think everybody needs to have somebody that that says you can do it. Yeah, you can make it happen. Yeah, and and uh, John Casso was the one for oh, me. Man, the value of that's infinite. Yeah, I mean, it really just, is. It's it really smooth. is. It changes your life. Uh, which character from a movie? But oh. Well, I tell you, I would love to meet, uh, and this is a this is a real character. And if you've, um, uh, I'd love to meet Abraham Lincoln. To tell oh, you the truth, really? Uh, yeah, Spielberg's uh, movie of Lincoln, uh, which was uh, with Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah, Daniel yeah, Day Lewis. Okay. Yeah, with the screenplay written by somebody from Lake Charles. Believe it. Really, or not. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, uh, Mr. Kushner, Tony Kushner wrote huh. that screenplay, and he's well, from that's an Charles. Interesting thing and it know. was it was interesting because he char- he um, he he didn't pick the he didn't pick something that was more he picked how to th- think rather than one of the great dramatic things. It was how he dealt with a particular problem, and I would love to 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 talk with him because uh, you know so much is um, of, of the United States history is dependent on on the interactions between what happened in the Civil War and just before, just after. And uh, it's uh, it would be nice to talk, to hear Abraham's viewpoint Yeah, boy, there. you're talking about being dead center of that. Dead yeah, center that of the be... issue, you know, because it, it, it becomes a little bit of an issue for me, you know, living in the South and having had ancestors that probably had slaves. Uh, you know, I, so far I haven't been able to find any that did because we were poor Cajuns, but... But uh, there's some possibility back then. You wonder about about the 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 relationship of how that actually worked, how people could actually justify that in terms of, of an economic. It had to happen, according to you know the, the South. It had to happen, and I'm wondering why it had to happen, because in another five or six years we had a, a complete change with the the. The, the changes with the steam power, this, right, that, you right. know, and all the equipment that uh, agricultural renovations and revolution just after the Civil War when you didn't have to have. Uh, interesting. So That's it, right. Yeah. I mean, technology so much. It, it's it easy to go. Well, technology is bad, and yeah. You know, so the, that, that so that and that, you know that argument is is moot. Yeah. Uh, because things were 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 changing at that point. So it would be interesting to get a Abraham Lincoln's that viewpoint. That's a on that. very interesting answer. Yeah. There you are. Well, that I, I, I tell you that that kind of stuff like that really gets you thinking. You know, Every, it does. Some, sometimes people pick some kind of cheeky character. No, you know, but really to get deep, deep dive into somebody that's like really at the the crux of. Uh, history well it, it really are the crux of history the crux of history the the actual point at which the defining character of the united states was created as far as i'm concerned uh because it, it, it pretty much everything that follows becomes you know connected with that event yeah now what can we do people like me you know to help with the protection of visible landmarks in the you know in southwest louisiana well one thing is that uh, is to to widen your concept of what a landmark is uh because landmarks are not necessarily uh you know old or or fancy they can be uh, regular it might be it might be something as as modest as uh, make a decision not to tear something down but to find a good another use for it 
Yeah. And if you're a business person, uh, there, there are some really good reasons for that. Sometimes uh, an adaptive reuse project is a little bit less expensive than a complete new rebuild, particularly if you have to drag in a lot of dirt in order to elevate the property or do something else to modify the way it's, it's done. Um, so if, if you're a business person and you're looking for new digs for your business, look around your community at a place that is underused or uh, that is a, abandoned and see if it can be revived for for current use it's a good idea to look at resources it's good stewardship uh of of existing resources to reuse what you already have rather than to rebuild from scratch yeah Uh, you know and it doesn't have to be big it it can be something uh, as modest or as modern as for example when when albertson's and sulfur left and kroger's moved in unfortunately kroger's had just built a new building too but the thing is when kroger's left somebody else went into that building so right doesn't become a dead property yeah don't keep the properties occupied and useful and consider maintaining your property as much as you, you possibly can because uh, uh, you know one of the underlying themes of this this podcast is that we live in a part of the country where uh, the environment is is deadly on buildings. I mean, uh, uh, we're dealing with rain, we're dealing with termites, we're dealing with mold, we're dealing with all sorts of things, high winds. And that means that you have to build to a slightly higher standard if you're expecting to, to adaptively reuse it. And uh, so we as, uh, as citizens, we as business owners, we as as uh, people who are in the community um, need to to support businesses that do adaptively reuse structures if they can, if you can, if you have, you know, instead of going to some th- somebody that's cut down all sorts of, uh, uh, cut down all sorts of trees in order to build, a, 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 to put up a, a, a tin building and you have them or you have somebody that's been in business for 60 years in the same location maintaining their property well go to, you know if you can make the choice go to go to one or the other yeah uh it uh, adaptive reuse and that is not those are good words adaptive yeah. reuse is something love that, that yeah it, adaptive reuse is good stewardship of resources and you know the 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 deal yeah, adaptive, re- and that's that's a decision that you can make. You can make a decision to to adaptively reuse something uh, if you can. Um, and remember that our history in Southwest Louisiana is v- we're a very young part of the country, very very young, and that means that things that are fifty years old are old. <laughs> particularly when you're looking at southwest louisiana you know a lot of our history is what we would call mid-century it's last century yeah uh but it, it, you know 50s 60s 70s and uh granted it's not necessarily the prettiest of architecture but you can redo the exteriors of buildings and you can use the good bones that you have ah yeah don't don't be off put by something um uh we're also real keen on trying to keep trees in place yes uh, we're big tree huggers we were uh, talking about this on the last episode yeah, i had Irvin yeah, luke on here yeah and um he said the same thing you know trees are great uh storm barriers really. they are I mean, they bring the water they're, up into the atmosphere and get it out of right the it, it they they're extremely important it helps to moderate the climate it uh, and frankly uh, uh tree there is no better example of that than on an august day if there are any trees in the parking lot there are cars underneath the, the yeah. trees nothing breaks my heart i mean it's just absolute truth nothing breaks my heart worse than when i see that there's a commercial property for sale 
in front of a piece of property that has big, beautiful old live oaks. Yeah. It just kills me because I know yeah. what's coming. The, you know? the live oaks, particularly, are living treasures like the Sabine Lighthouse. They are symbols of Southwest Louisiana. Live oaks don't grow everywhere. Live oaks are are important parts of our history, particularly here, because most live oaks, uh, uh, except maybe things like the, the Sally Oak and a couple of odd things like that, were probably planted by men and women who were pioneers in this area. A lot of live oaks were used as marker uh, uh, trees. They marked the edges of property. Mm. That's why you have alleys of live oaks. Even in the country, you'll see alleys of live like in Chupique, there are live oaks, there yeah. are live oaks uh, between here and De Quincey. And you'll see lines of live oaks. Those are not naturally occurring. Those are actually planted by man. And they planted live oaks because live oaks are extremely resilient to weather and they're ideal for our climate. So live oaks are really living treasures as far as I'm concerned and uh, they, they really get zero respect. They get zero respect in Lake Charles. They get zero respect in a lot of places. Um, when the interst- when the, the precursor to the interstate highways, the United States Federal Highway System, Highway 90, Highway 90, when it was designed, Highway 190, when it was designed, Highway 71, when it was designed, they were designed to have trees, oak trees on both sides yeah, of the road. Yeah, that's right. They covered them. They covered it. And the reason was that that back then they figured that you're going to be driving in an unair-conditioned car. If you have to change the tire, <laughs> you want to change it in the shade. If you want to drive cool and comfortable, that was your air conditioning to have live oaks. And we have a few live oaks along Highway 90. Uh, uh, yeah, we have some here in Sulphur yeah, right there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And those trees are absolutely as far as I'm concerned, specifically uh, monuments uh, in South Louisiana, because the, as I understand the history of the highway department, a fellow by the name, a Lake Charles person by the name of Tarbert Slack, and that's a name to conjure with, Slack, mm-hmm. Tarbert Slack, was the, the brainstorm for that. He had, he had served in the... Um, he had served in the army, as I understand, and had seen that the Romans planted trees along the Roman roads uh, 2,000 years ago. <laughs> Interesting. For the same reason that Tarbert Slack said, we ought to plant trees along the, the U.S. highways in order to provide shade for our uh, for our, our motoring public. And so, and Tarbert was a native of South Louisiana, Southwest Louisiana. Isn't that the the gravity of history? Yeah. I mean, to go, you can take those trees right here on Highway 90, right. draw a line to him, and then his inspiration comes from 2,000 years, years ago, ago in with the Romans. Rome. That's incredible. You see, but that's, that's the thing. Incredible. That's incredible. If, if, if you're a generalist, I'm a history generalist, so, you know, I can tell you a little bit about 17th century France. I can tell you a little bit about this. I can tell you a little bit about a lot, but I can tell you a lot about Southwest Louisiana. And the thing is, there are... There are models and examples in history that sort of shape your your environment. And as far as as here, uh, you know, I see shapes and patterns all the time. Yeah. You know, and I try to make connections. And that's yeah. that's uh, what a good historian does is that. Make those connections. Yeah. So, if when you see an oak tree, if you ever have your you know, if you ever have to change a tire on Highway 90, change it under one of Tarbert Slack's Roman That's incredible. inspired trees you know 
it's interesting because uh, I love drawing lines between each person I've had on the show in a similar way. And I love that how sometimes I, I just see them sort of echoing each other. You know, Irvin Luke was here and we were talking about this and he was talking about ecology is the study of relationships mm. between things. And I, I always bring up this Zen Buddhist monk that I love to read named Thich Nhat Hanh and he uses the word interbeing. He said, nothing is um, not dependent on something oh, else. Everything is just all, a combination. Right. And listening to you talk about that too, that's exactly what you're describing, mm-hmm. the, the connections between things. I mean, mm-hmm. nothing is... In, is is depend, is no, you're, no man is an island, really. Yeah. And, and, and even though you're, we're here, we're in southwest Louisiana, it's 2019, we have connections back to the Romans in the way trees were planted along the, the highways. Yeah. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Who would have thought? I have one more question, and it's on the back of this yellow coffee mug. And that's your coffee mug, by the way. And it's on the other side. Did anything good happen today? Yeah. Yeah, the best thing that happened is that I came to talk with Oren Parker. Man, that's fantastic. Yeah. I braved the crossing I of the Calcasieu to come. You didn't have to take a ferry or didn't ride have on to take a log. Ferry or walk on logs. <laughs> I didn't have to take the, the hazel and a mule. And that was the good thing that happened today. Man, that's great to hear. I'm glad because, you know... That's what I want from this show is there's so many good things going on around us. It's so easy to get overwhelmed in the in the tidal wave of you and I had this before we even started recording uh, elevating the conversation, right? right? Having elevated discourse. Elevated discourse is yeah. what we need. Yeah. Let me see here. I'm getting past a note. Adley's grasp of our timeline. What does that mean to you? Well, Melinda likes... My wife is with us right here. She's been very quiet, but she's been writing on her hand most of the time. Uh, uh, Melinda claims that I have a timeline in my brain that has all these little offshoots. And if you pick a spot, I can go from that spot to like 15 other different spots Uh on the timeline to, to, to... His grasp of our history all the way back to... Dinosaurs today. <laughs> well, not so much dinosaurs. We didn't have dinosaurs. We didn't have dinosaurs Remarkable, here. Uh, grasp of our time, yeah. Southwest Louisiana, and how it connects to the rest of the world. Sure, it's fabulous, and it's one of the gifts of listening yeah. to him talk about history. Is that thing that that takes you from way back when to now? Is a is his brain is a long timeline. And it's it's a pleasure to listen to it is. and talk because he can interweave things that we think of separate uh, events into the pattern of our history. Well, you know that day that I took that ride with you, and I mean that may not have been a spectacular day, particularly for you, but when I came back from that, I it stuck with me all these years. And uh, when I started this show, I said eventually I'm going to try to get Adley on the show because that was a conversation that I never got to have again, and I haven't had one since. You know, and it's a shame because we we live in a fascinating part of the the country. We take it for granted. We just drive through, you know. But I, I when when I when as we drive back to Lake Charles, uh, we're going to round that corner uh, and uh, we'll look at Bilbo Cemetery and I'll think, yeah. oh well, this is Bilbo Cemetery. This is where Cantonman Atkinson was located. This is where this. You make all these little connections. You know, it's 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 a rare. It, well, it's a rare, but it's also kind of annoying at sometimes because you start thinking, you know, I should really be paying attention. To my driving. <laughs> no, I am. He's the navigator. I'm the driver. Yeah. Anytime I say, what about that over there? It's like a pop-up book of our region's history it opens up because he has a grip on that. And it's yeah. wonderful for you to invite him here because 
we get to benefit from that encyclopedic knowledge that yeah. he has of our history. I, I agree. There are two things that come to mind. One is another podcast that I really enjoy listening to with uh, Mike Rowe, and he, he has a podcast called The Way I Heard It. Mm-hmm. And that podcast in and of itself is an homage, as he admitted, admits in the first episode, to Paul Harvey's old uh, show. And both of those things, uh, Paul Harvey, when I was a kid, was somebody I used to love to listen to. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to love the way he would tell a story and then wrap it up at the end in the big reveal of what you were actually right. hearing the history yeah. of. Yeah. And, you know, Mike's trying to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it's just wonderful because you don't realize what you just, you don't know what you don't know. That's you don't know what, that's exactly right. You don't know what you that's don't exactly know. right. It's, uh, it's, it, and there are so many examples of how that works if you know the context that it's in. Um, um, I can go from Baptist orphans to streetcars. And you think, okay, Baptist Orphans is well. Uh, in 1899, the Louisiana Baptist Convention decided that Lake Charles would be the ideal place to have an orphanage. And I'm talking about an old Victorian-style orphanage with wards and, you know, uh, matrons and all that sort of uh-huh. thing. And Lake Charles was chosen at the time because Lake Charles was the place that they thought they could re- renew these kids and turn them into good little farmers and good little housewives and good, you know, productive people by teaching them this sort of thing. And so there were farms. There was a, an actual barn set up and they had cows and the little Baptist orphans were taught to be farmers and printers and uh, a number of other there were bakers there were several occupations that they were actually trained to do uh, the site that was located was uh, off 7th street between 7th and 9th and uh, bank and kirkman street in lake charles and uh, it, w- it functioned there for quite a long time it was about uh, almost 30 years and uh, eventually a Baptist family in Monroe Louisiana decided to give even more land in Monroe and so the Baptist orphanage was shut down in Lake Charles well the Baptist orphanage was adaptively reused it was purchased by a woman named um, Landry okay Mrs. Mrs. Landry uh, uh, J. Landry her husband had died suddenly uh, unexpectedly and um, her husband Jay Landry was the major stockholder in the streetcar company in Lake Charles <laughs> the one you'd mentioned yeah, earlier, the one we mentioned yeah. earlier and uh, Jay Landry had extremely ambitious plans for the streetcar he was going to expand it it was going to he was eventually going to run the streetcar all the way to New Iberia Louisiana and we're going to have daily service from Lake Charles to New Iberia can you imagine on, on a streetcar line and it was going to pick up people in Bell City. It was going to pick up people in, in uh, all, all the way down. So it was going to change the entire fabric of Southwest Louisiana. Unfortunately, Jay had died. Uh, Mrs. Landry was absolutely distraught. And she decided to buy the vacant orphanage and give it to the Christian brothers, the Catholic Christian brothers, to turn into a boys' school. It became okay. J.A. Landry Memorial High School for Boys. Wow. Okay. Then, uh, many years later, J.A. Landry, St. Charles Academy, which was the girls' Catholic school, and Sacred Heart High School, which was the black Catholic high school in town, merged to form St. Louis High School. Interesting. So, you have an interesting connection between Louisiana Baptists, streetcars, and a Catholic high school in southwest Louisiana. Now, isn't that an odd line? Yeah, and you know, Adley, I've just got, you know, I'm in advertising. I'm always having creative ideas. You could have your own show (laughs) that has, just like this fishbowl, that just has single topics 
that are un- seemingly unrelated that where you draw to and then the whole you episode is you <laughs> making the connections. What an interesting show that would be. It would be a fascinating show. I would, I'm, I'm wondering if it would actually work beyond the first show, but it would be an interesting <laughs> show because it is true. There are some really odd connections in Lake Charles. There are some particularly odd connections uh, in Southwest Louisiana, not just Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana. It's a strange part of the country to be from. It's a fascinating part of the country to be from. And with that, with that, we got to. We're going to have to wind this up. No, that's sometime. good. That's good. I actually, that's a great place to put a pin. And honestly, uh, I hope that maybe someday you'll come back. We can have another conversation. Sometime we'll cross the Calcasieu. Maybe on a new bridge. Yeah, we'll cross right, the Cal- right. We'll cross Wouldn't the Calcasieu. But uh, you're you would be worth crossing the Calcasieu even if I had to walk on logs. I had fun. I really did. This is this was round two for me. You know, like I said, I only got a taste that day for the historic tour, and we didn't go anywhere into the territory that we went mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would encourage people to. I mean, now you said you give tours just to wrap it up. I mean, so how people get in touch with you to do that type of stuff? What's the best? Well, uh, I, I actually work through the Convention Visitors Bureau. They are the ones. That okay, actually so they're the ones. Yeah, they're the ones who actually schedule it. Uh, most of the time, it's a step-on type thing where I will walk on, you know, step onto a bus and actually do the. Um, uh, you know, do a tour over a set route. Occasionally, somebody will privately engage me to do. I did a private tour for the the wife of the uh, the uh, uh, president of Sitco one day. I was doing it in English, and she was getting it in Spanish through an interpreter. It was interesting. Uh, so it, uh, it occasionally does happen that way. Uh, but uh, generally, the Commission Visitors Bureau is the one who uh, is very good at promoting the history of Southwest Louisiana and exploring the history of Southwest Louisiana. So I want to plug. That them too if i can't they're one of our bigger clients and i enjoy working with them that's how i connected with you the first time but then the other thing that i want to talk about just really quickly is your book lost like charles lost like charles yeah yeah yeah, Lost Like Charles. Uh, it's a, a, an actual published book. Uh, you can get it at Amazon. You can get okay. it locally. Uh, just type in Lost Like Charles and you can find it. Uh, it's available in a hard copy, paperback. I think there's even an ebook now. I wish uh, I'd have bought a hard copy. Yeah, I didn't know. I yeah, got the paperback. Uh, yeah, uh, but it's uh, it's uh, uh, the, it's been uh, it's now in its second or third reprint. So it's oh, good. Wow. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I was really happy to hear that. Although to be very honest, um, uh, one of the things an interesting sidelight my wife's first husband uh, the late Myron McFillan his aunt was Nola Mae Ross Oh, really? A pioneer writer in Southwest Louisiana. Oh, wow. a, a great gal, a great gal. Uh, and um, she, uh, towards the end, I was the uh, I was the relative that helped her schlep her books around. And I said, <laughs> I never wanted to self-publish. She self-published. And uh, when you self-publish, it means that you take on the cost of getting it produced and so forth. And, and you take the advantage of, of selling them, but you actually have to sell them. I'm happy to have a, a national distributor. Or, yeah. uh, it's a history book. Uh, history book company uh, an Arcadia um, uh, print they have the Lost Lake Charles uh, uh, they're my publisher and they're the ones that are getting it out there and making it available so my opinion Lost Lake Charles required reading for anybody who lives in Lake Charles that's maybe not from Lake Charles mm-hmm. and doesn't even if you do live here yeah yeah you know it's it's the history of the area it, and it's yeah. Lost Lake Charles but it could just as easily be lost southwest Louisiana yeah absolutely yeah you're, you're gonna see things and, and honestly you've got a, a bunch of great photography in here too that people yeah, are probably I, not going to be yeah, familiar uh, with one of the things that we're real lucky with in southwest louisiana is that we have a fabulous arc 
archives at McNeese State University. Plug to them. Plug to to uh, Patty Three, who is their archivist there. Uh, she's a, a local uh, uh, person who understands the history. Uh, the uh, collection of images is phenomenal. We have a phenomenal image. And the other big plug is to the archives of the American Press newspaper. American Press newspaper and its predecessor papers uh, have been digitized, so you can actually see. You can pull up if you want to know what the life was like on the in southwest Louisiana the day you were born. You can actually go to McNeese archive to uh, uh, the archives of the newspaper and pull it up, and you can actually see the paper from that wow. day, which is phenomenal. It's not that way everywhere in the United States. Uh, big plugs to them, and a big uh, thumbs up to the Southwest Louisiana Genealogical and Historical Library. Uh, we have fabulous resources for checking out your history in Southwest Louisiana, and a big plug to them. The Calcutta Parish Library System has a whole branch that deals with history. Anybody listening to this episode needs to have a pen and paper ready to write all this stuff down. Yeah, really. Because really, there is so much information you can enjoy so much about the history of this area just from listening to this one conversation. Sounds great. It's exactly right. Man, well, my answer to what's on the back of that mug is this was also something good that happened to me today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I love you just as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Find the Good News. If you would like to advertise on this show or sponsor an episode, just visit findthegood.news. Send me a message and we'll see about getting your business, organization, service, product, or event on the show. I deeply thank each of you again for supporting this podcast.